This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today, John Stryker Tilt Meyer. John is an author, reporter, and U.S. Army Special Forces soldier. He's a combat veteran of Mac V. Sog in Vietnam and has chronicled his experiences and those of Mac V. Sog in his books, Across the Fence, On the Ground, The Secret War in Vietnam, and Sog Chronicles. He is a speaker, consultant, and host of the podcast, Sogcast, Untold Stories of Mac V. Sog. And now, without further ado, John Stryker Meyer. Oh, man. All right. Kicking it off. Man, this was so cool. I mean, I was so excited when I saw you drive in the gate because we've been <laughs> talking for so long on uh, direct message and text and uh, and got to talk on the podcast, but it was remote last Indeed. time. And um, it's just Bonnie such an shook honor. your hand. So, I mean, it is such an honor to have you here. It means uh, well, it's mutual me. admiration society, sir. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, uh, and thank you also for your help on the novels, because this last year I was <laughs> texting you, how do you, you know, cause sometimes you think, you know, something and then you start writing it. And for whatever reason you think, Oh, have I been, is this the right way to do this? Or have I been thinking about this, uh, defining this the wrong way for 25 years or something? And, uh, a couple of times I've looked into to how to say something or what an action acronym means. Sure. And uh, I've just assumed for years because we've just in the SEAL teams or whatever else uh, have, have said a certain thing that that's what it what. But when you look into the actual doctrine or the actual definition, you realize it's not, not quite right. Just a classic example would be for us. We always said A1E Sky Raiders. Okay. Well, <clears throat> when my first book came out, the first thing I heard from was A1 Sky Raider pilots that chewed my ass out. Said, you got it wrong. The A1E is a two-seater, and we seldom use them in combat. Interesting. Oh. And so, like, in your case, it's the same thing with me. If I talk about SEALs, I need an interpreter. Because, <laughs> you know, you go from one language to another, and you're bouncing back from SEAL talk yeah. to, to uh, SF, and it's like, okay, I need an interpreter just to be sure. Yeah, no, you got to check all those things that you oh. think you know. You have to you have to check, but that's interesting with the Sky Raider because some of those things that are yeah you know, another Marshall service or another whatever yeah. go or another uh, you know uh, you know another division of your own service or whatever else and they have a certain way of talking and oh, sometimes yeah. like hey we'd never say that in the actual in the aviation community we say this and you're like, ah, okay well let me <laughs> let me change that up then um, did you change it for future editions yes okay yep. But it was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, some of those things, and, and there's always something. There's ne you're never going to have a, a book in a first edition where there are no errors. It's just how it is. Um, there's always going to be something. <laughs> there's always going to be something. Um, you know what? I did this last time, but I want to do it again for people who haven't, uh, didn't listen to that first one or haven't heard you on Jocko's podcast or Sog Chronicles. And um, so I'm going to read the back of On the Ground because it's, it's just a, a pretty cool intro. And uh, it says, During the Vietnam War, a secret war was fought across the fence in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. Unknown to the media or the public, under the aegis of the Military Assistance Command Vietnam's Top Secret Studies and Observations Group, SOG's chain of command for missions and after-action reports extended to the White House and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Small Green Beret-led teams ran missions into Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam without assistance from conventional artillery, tanks, 
or infantry units. Once on the ground, their sole support was provided by Air Force tactical air and helicopter units, U.S. Army and Marine helicopter aviation personnel and air crews, and from the South Vietnam Air Force 219th Special Operations Squadron, codenamed King Bees. In Laos, the communists dedicated 50,000 troops to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, including highly trained sappers from the 305th Sapper Battalion. Its sole mission, attack SOG teams. Nice. And we learned later that their sole mission, uh, the way they did it was to, if they found a team, was to kill all the Americans and leave the indigenous alive so they could go back for psyops. Interesting. On top of it. Really? Yeah, but again, this is all things as, as time marches on. Yeah, it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. What have you, what, like, there's a perfect example. What are the <clears> things <throat> that you have learned um, since Vietnam that uh, have you either where you've been like, oh, now I get that, why that happened or why they were doing this? Or what are some of those things that stand out to you that you've learned well, since very, Vietnam? On a very personal level, we learned many years later that we had the highest casualty rate of the Vietnam War, which mm. some say exceeds 100%, meaning our guys were either wounded, killed in action, or missing in action. Like today, as we sit here in 2023, there are still 50 Green Berets that are listed as missing in action from the secret war in Vietnam, across the fence in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. Yeah. And so that you learned many years later. We knew we were taking casualties. And how do we do that? Like Bob Howard, who received the Medal of Honor for a mission in six days, put in for three medals, got it once, and he had uh, received eight Purple Hearts. He was put in Jeez. for 11 or 12. One author said it was 14. So, but at least you figure put in for at least 11. Hey. He earned, he, was, he received eight. That's incredible. Yeah. And some of our, several of our guys, particularly the guys that came back for a second, like Eldon Barswell mm-hmm. and other men yeah. that all had one or more Purple Heart. Jeez. Of course, in our day, it was kind of like, no. Oh. Oh, it's kind of an embarrassment. You're just too slow to get out of the way. <laughs> I've heard a few uh, Vietnam veteran <laughs> special operators uh, say that. it was the, They call it the uh, Enemy Marksmanship Award. <laughs> and I've heard uh, a guy from Project Delta used to say that right. uh, yeah. about, their, about their crew. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, what's uh, on, those, on those guys that were uh, taken captive or miss, still missing in action all these years later, um, I we were talking a while back about some of the things that led to uh, the betrayal of, of missions or uh, units or people. Um, what were some of those things that led to those, those captures? Well, again, over time, we've learned that there, there was compromises at several level. Mm. A, we knew there was some in camp. B, the NVA had people set up so that when at, at the FOBs, whenever in 68, when I got there, there were six FOBs, and they would all launch west into either Cambodia or Laos. Occasionally, we'd go north for a down pilot, mm. but the majority would go west. And so there were people observing, and then they had people on a border that when the helicopters came across, they would give the vector, uh-huh. and they would radio that ahead. And they were very well trained in RDF with the help of the Russians, of course. Uh, we also learned with the... Um, um, the in the 1967, and I think it was 67 or early 68, when the Koreans, North Koreans, seized the Navy ship, mm-hmm. took, and uh, they did that at the behest of the Russians. When it comes into port, 
the KGB and their people were there. They took all of the top secret equipment off of that ship, put some of it in Cambodia, where they monitored our top secret traffic unbeknownst to our people for years. That's Navy, Air Force, maybe Air Force, and Army for sure. And then then to compound that, you had the uh, spy ring that was going on, John Walker spy ring in D.C., where they sold the daily codes to the Russians. So they had the, the equipment to monitor the traffic and then the codes, how to break it. Wow. And they were able to monitor it. So in my case, the most dramatic example of that was we had a target and the South Vietnamese Air Force, when they inserted it, we would spiral into the LZ. So one day we're spiraling in November 68, and my South Vietnamese counterpart, Sal, or Fook, our point man, yelled to the door gunner. They aborted. Somehow he had seen a wire across the LZ. So we're going into a top secret target. They had a wire there. It's attached to a 500-pound bomb. And we have other examples of that that we could go into later. But um, so that was going on at the time. What did you think then? Like, what, what, what was in your mind? Well, like, how did they know? Or what, what, what did you guys think? Or did it you was, just focus on the next mission? Or did you have operations going to try to ferret out how they could have known you were going into that LZ? Well, uh, WTF times two. Yeah. Because we knew and suspected that we were compromised. We never knew how bad. Yeah. We, the ground pounders, would tell command. They would pass it up to Saigon. And we always wanted better radio, better comms. And we just never got it. We were stuck with the Prick 25 for the longest time. And then when he finally uh, gave us the uh, radios upgrade with encrypted vocal. Mm. There's a book that's out now that might be a future interview for you. It's called um, Saw Codename Dynamite. Oh, okay. Dick Thompson. I knew him as Henry. We were together at FOB 1 and 68. Okay. But this is the... Now... With the new encrypted radio, Dick was in a target on the ground, and on the encryption across his radio came a funeral dirge. They played music to a funeral. He knew it was a funeral dirge because when he grew up as a kid, there were funerals. He heard the music. Then Hanoi Hannah, or one of her counterparts, came on. This is the encrypted secret frequency mm-hmm. said uh, Dick Thompson and we all knew him as Henry mm. so only two other people knew his name mm. nickname was Dick which was his middle name Eldon Bargewell and his cousin who came to visit him at CCN no kidding so this is 69 or early 70 yeah the funeral dirge ended she goes you were on RT Michigan you're Dick Thompson, you're the one zero, your one one is here. Your team members today are bop, 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 and we are going to annihilate you today. So we're playing the funeral music for you because your team is going to get wiped out. The CIA heard that transmission, reported to SOG that our team had been wiped out. And then Dick tells how he did not get wiped out. Jeez. So that's an example of the high degree of of compromise that we never realized. Last but not least, after um, the war ended 
a South Vietnamese who was in SOG headquarters. And he's in John Plaster's pictorial book at the end. This one here, is this one or is it a different one? It is, it yeah. would be that one, yes. Yeah. Near the end, I think, um, yes. And it's a picture of him with Speedy Gaspard, Major Speedy Gaspard in Saigon. And this guy got the highest medal from North Vietnam for his years of being a spy in SOG headquarters. Wow. Right next to the high command. He was yeah. there all the time, walking up and down the halls. They highly trusted him. He was so good, they never realized it. So those are the different levels of compromise that you'll be reading about in my fourth book. If All right. I ever get started, I keep reading uh, about how you write. I'm going to try to get into my Jack Carr mode and yeah. get on a book for you. Let's do it. Let's do it. What's, uh, do you have a title for it yet? Or what are you? Uh... I'm, I'm lazy. I'm not inventive like you. It's going to be Saw Chronicles Volume 2. Hey, there we go. That's something, you know. <laughs> If you have one, you know you need two. It's uh, that's perfect. Yeah. But uh, you haven't started that one yet. Is it outlined or anything? It on, only in my mind. But okay. the saw compromise would be one of the chapters. Absolutely. Yeah. Jeez. But it was just brutal, and we never realized it. I mean, you know, we had uh, they we knew they had good RDF capabilities. Mm. They tracked our teams down, and that's one of the another one of the series of things that worked against us in terms of the odds of the teams on the ground. Jeez, what's uh. It, was that the whole time that you were there? What did you when you first got there? Yeah, did you think about or did you get briefings on the possibility of compromise or things to look out for? You're working with indigenous troops. Um, we are uh, there's there's obviously people in your in your camps coming and going, like in any oh, you yeah. know forward operating base anywhere around well, the world. Yeah, we when uh, well, I arrived in in uh, at FOB one in May of '68, and so the secret war had been going on for four years at that point. So it's a total of eight years from uh, 64 to 72. And 68 was our worst year for casualties. And um, by the time I arrived at FOB1, we had two or three recon teams that had been completely wiped out, hatchet forces that had been devastated, another recon team where everybody was killed except for the one zero, the team leader, who escaped and evaded for two days. And they picked him up. And when we came into camp, he had been back from Laos for a week or so, and he had that. 20,000 miles stare in his eye. Wow. And then we had another uh, helicopter that had gone down, killing one of our guys. And uh, so it was a really rough time. Plus, um, my introduction, I arrived at FOB1. I got off to King B. A recon team got on. And as I said earlier, that was, um, they disappeared. And so the two Americans, uh, the team leader, 1-0, um, Glenn Lane, his 1-1, Robert Owen, are still amongst the 50 Green Berets that are MIA today from the Secret War alone. Jeez. And we still have 1,500, I think today's account is 578 mm-hmm. Americans from Southeast Asia that are listed as missing in action mm-hmm. from the Vietnam War. That includes Laos, Cambodia, North Vietnam, South Vietnam. Yeah. Man. When when that happened, when you first showed up, what did, how did they articulate to you what was going on or how to conceptualize that or was that just business as usual? Hey, we lost an entire team. We have no idea where they are. Uh, hey, here's your next mission. Or cause today, if something like that happened, I'll stop obviously. And we're focused now on finding those guys. Yeah. WTF. Yeah. Like there's no, <laughs> what happened here? Yeah. Obviously we have different technologies we can use and there's different assets available and things like that. But what was it? What, when you shut up, we're like, wait, what? They just disappeared and we just, we're continuing on? Or what do we, Oh yeah. do we now focus on finding them? Or we still have a mission to do? Or we're doing both? Or what did they, what well, did they tell you? Well, in my case, I was really lucky because uh, 
uh, Spider, Robert J. Spider Parks, had been on Idaho. He ran several missions and got promoted to a new mm-hmm. team. He just got promoted. The team gets wiped out. So they bring Bob back. And our interpreter and a veteran on the team who had been on the team for two years, they had skipped that rotation. So with them, we rebuilt Idaho. Bob brought us back, shaped us up, mm. trained up. So um, the command would tell us what the missions were, how we're moving forward. At night at the FOB uh, one clubhouse, that's where you learn the truth from the enlisted guys, the guys who are on the ground. That part hasn't changed, by the way. Has not, yeah. absolutely. So um, we knew we had the mission. We knew that we were the, the tip of the spear at that time, and we had to go get at it because the, our mission was to get the intel as well as some of the point missions along the way yeah. as we came up. So, yeah, continue to march. What was the uh, the guy's name you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, evaded for two days and made it back? John Allen. John Allen. What did did you did you talk to him after that? Did he give a debrief? Did he pass on lessons learned? Did you guys capture those? No. Well, I don't know about that because uh, myself, John McIntyre, and a couple other guys that came into camp, we're just green yeah. as grass, green berets. Right. So we're like, holy shit! <laughs> no. Yeah. And that's John Allen. And so the guys who knew him, if anybody talked to him, we assume he was debriefed somewhere. Yeah. But he would never talk to us. I mean, he was just oh wow, at such a uh, tormented state, having survived that, yeah. to get his team wiped out like that. Oh, man. And John's still alive. Oh, wow. Somewhere. Yeah. But I've talked to his daughter, but he, in his own way, he's, he's dealing with life, yeah. moving on, and just separated himself from it all. Yeah. He stayed there for over 20 years. Oh, really? Amazing guy. Yeah, but uh, we knew him. Everybody respected him. Mm-hmm. And like I said, to survive that ordeal. Yeah. And uh, so we continued to march, and the mm-hmm. missions came down. And the other thing about 68, when I reported in, we, had, we came in S3, there were 30 recon teams listed. By the end of November, or early part of December, I forget, but near the end of 68, at one point, our team, for a few days, was the only operational team in camp out of 30. Either they'd been wiped out, wounded, uh, people transferred out, illness. You know, Mm. you had uh, the different kind of malaria and Mm. things that would beset a team. But that's where that period of time when we would go out, get shot out of the target, primary, secondary, the Mm. alternate, come back, have lunch. Here's a new target. we got to get a team on the ground. And they would go out and pick an LZ for us. It's like we just want to get a team on the ground. Jeez, what yes. year did uh, what year did Nick Rowe get? Uh, get that captured? was early. I think it was either sixty five or sixty six, and he was or maybe uh, even been earlier. He was years in captivity. Is that? I think it was five. Yeah, five because it's five years to freedom is the book. I think it is. Yeah. Um, did you ever uh, talk to him or uh, get debriefed on his no. other, other than the book, which obviously <laughs> is a you know debrief? But did you get anything? Did they talk about that? Or we we knew about it because it was in the SF community. Mm happy that he got out amazed that he got out and um so it was just but no he was down south and then they brought him back to the states i don't don't even know what his history was here yeah so um and that was in country yeah that wasn't across the fence yeah when he was captured yeah and what he endured it's like well any of our pow's yeah jeez it was interesting doing this research for this last book i did a um uh 
a deep dive into the POW MIA issue. Oh yeah, and, you, you hit it hard. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's so much more I wanted to write. I wanted to just write just about that, but you know, you have, you're working into a story in a way that's appropriate and moves the story forward. Uh, hopefully, educates a uh, a little bit. Um, anyway, it just it's it, it's always you have to honor the story. And oh yeah, um, but I learned. I mean, I learned uh, a lot just because I, I picked up the all these different books that I some I hadn't read before, and I thought I was fairly well uh, read up or educated on the POW. MIA issue and I learned a lot a lot more um, it's such a sad chapter in US history US military history yeah. um, uh, while you guys were there did you ever think about those teams that went missing and think about we're never going to leave this place without making sure we have all our guys or in the back of your mind were you thinking one day we're going to leave this place and we're probably going to leave a lot of people behind or did it not cross it was that not on oh no i mean you talked about it and on one hand you wanted to have more missions but we never had the intel that would have a target now Mm -hmm. uh in 69 we had a team that was all two hoys they're nva the team leader was pat eddington sergeant pat eddington who appeared asian i forget what his true ethnicity Mm -hmm. was but he there's a tall Asian appearance. Mm. So he had us all in VA team. They would literally walk up and down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. He was given a target to go to an American POW camp in Laos. He gets inserted en route to the target. Up on his pre-RC-25 comes a voice speaking perfect English. Sergeant Eddington, we know your mission. Your destiny is going to be this camp. I'm the commander of this camp. You have a choice. You can continue with your mission, and I will kill every American here, or you can turn around and go home. So Pat turned around and went home. But to come up on the frequency, knowing the mission, knew Eddington's name, and his team was R.T. Cobra, and they knew it. And is that part of the the high-level compromise? But how do they... So they have the radio frequency... They have whatever encryption. Well, that I don't, that may not have been encrypted. Yeah, because it's, it's but still yeah. I mean, they come up on the frequency. So you come up on the frequency, and for people listening that don't know about radios and all that stuff, I mean, uh, you know, on that radio, you're not going to be halfway around there. You're not going to be doing that from Moscow, um, making that that sort of a, a shot. Um, that's that's incredible. That oh yeah, I mean to have his name to have his name. Like that's one thing. To have the frequency. Yeah. It's another to have the And look, the same thing with Dick. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, we had conventional teams like ST Alabama, which uh, tomorrow will be the 55th anniversary of nine versus 10,000 NVA. Uh, um, that what, mission. What is that one? Uh, the nine-man team went in October 5th. They had a, a, a team leader who was inexperienced in Vietnam. He had been in the conventional army, came to the 10th Special Forces Group, which was in Germany, very different from Laos. And he was on the team. They went in two helicopters. The first helicopter went in, and the uh, the team leader and four men got out. The second helicopter came in with Lynn Black and Cowboy, who was the team interpreter. And they saw an NVA flag. So Lynn goes up to him because Lynn had a previous tour of duty with the 173rd, a combat tour. He goes, 
NVA flag, there's at least 3,000 here. It's got to be a battalion. He says, I recommend we turn around and go home. Oh, and the second helicopter got shot down, leaving oh, after dropping the team off. So the assets are covering them, and the team leader goes, oh, no, they're not going to run me off. Go down the trail. He takes him down the trail, and at some point, they walked into an L-shaped ambush that fit the NVA. Jeez. And in the initial firefight, the point man was killed. The team leader who made the wrong decision, the wrongful order, was killed instantly. And then one other was wounded. <clears throat> and then they're in a firefight that went on for the entire day. So um, to get to the condensing the story a little, 20 years later, or 25 years, they go back for the body of the team leader. Lynn Black worked with the uh, what was then the, the, the version of DPAA for the uh, Department of POW MIA Accountability Agency. Yeah. <coughs> Lynn worked with him, map coordinates, things like that. He gets a Jeez. phone call. He goes, hi, this is General Nguyen Confusion from North Vietnam. I was the colonel that ambushed your team that day. No way. Yeah. And he said, you guys came in. We heard it. We set up the ambush because you walked down the trail. And so they're back and forth. And uh, the general goes, you know, that was a bad day for us. We had a lot of casualties. And Lynn said, well, yeah, we, you killed three of our men. So three of our nine, and they couldn't bring him back. That's why they tried to get back for the American. And the NBA general goes, yeah, well, you know, you inflicted 90% casualties between your team, the air assets, which included Air Force fast movers, of course, the Sky Raiders, uh, Don Deneen was one of the Sky Raider pilots that flew that mission, several missions that day, sorties. Mm -hmm. We had the 176, the Muskets, and Marine Corps that came in with the um, Scarface. They all supported the team on the ground that day. Wow. At, in the early parts of the firefight, they killed so many people, they were stacking up the dead bodies. So when the next wave attack came, they were hiding behind the dead bodies of the NBA. Jeez. So the... Link is talking to this guy, and Link goes, well, we saw the flag. We assumed it was a battalion, like 30,000 or 3,000 men. He goes, no, no, it was a division. It was 10,000, and that day we suffered 90% casualties. Jeez. And then, the, and then the side note, the general goes, who was the radio operator? And it was Lynn. He says, yeah, the radio operator was the only guy that didn't go to the ground. All the other team went down and fired up at the ambush. Lynn just stood there, chunk, 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 new magazine, chunk, chunk, chunk. And when I interviewed him for Across the Fence, uh, he said, yeah, I shot a couple of these guys two or three times. And it gets spun around, you know. And uh, so the, the general goes, well, who was the radio operator? Lynn goes, well, it was me. He goes, you shot me three times. No way. And he says, the worst thing about it was after you shot me, I laid on the ground. Watching you kill my men, I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> Jeez. So that's direct testimony that we had for just another day in Saad. So that the very next wild. day, our team inserted into a target Echo 4. And then the following day, we had contact for four hours. That was my first real test. But that was a, compared to what Lynn went through, that was a cakewalk. <laughs> well. I want to ask you about that first uh, that first firefight, but also I wonder when you hear stories like that, when you hear about people separated by all these years that were in a fight to the death um, at one point in their lives, having a conversation with one another. Can I wonder at what point you can do that. 
uh, like certainly not a week after, um, a year, probably not war still going 10 years after the end of hostilities, 20. Cause you hear also about, uh, world war two and you're bringing together either Germans and Americans or Germans and Brits sure. or, uh, Japanese and Americans. Hey, we were fighting each other. You shot me down. Um, oh, yeah. you know, that sort of a thing. And now they're talking, you know, however many years later, uh, and having, you know, a beer together or tea or whatever it might be. Right. Um, but they're not at each other's throats. No, but, Maybe if it was 1946 or 47, 48, the wounds are still pretty raw. I, I just wonder, you know, when... Well, yeah, we had the World War II vets in San Diego County. The first time the Japanese sailed into port, the World War II guys that had been at Pearl Harbor flipped out. So that kind of thing. This, yeah. That was like 35 years or 40 years later. Yeah. So our guys, and again... Uh, in 2018, we have the Special Operations Association has a, a joint PLWMIA committee with the Special Forces Association. Mm. And Mike Taylor, a retired lieutenant colonel, mm. was the committee chairman. He went to Vietnam with the National League of PLWMIA families on a joint mission. Uh, the league was gone with DPAA to meet officials in North Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Mm. Mike tagged along to meet NVA, and he met the NVA that were what we called the SOG hunter-killer teams. They wouldn't call it that. And, they, of course, you know, the Asian talk it down. Well, we aren't quite like, well, we knew what you were. We heard the intel. But the point was they talked. Yeah. They, they had dinner together, compared notes, and, and from that we've been able to get an improved working relationship with Vietnam. Mm. Of course, then COVID hits and knocks all the uh, mm. setbacks in terms of getting uh, DPAA teams on the ground in Laos and Cambodia looking for our people. Yeah. But that's just one example. And Mike did it. I don't know if, in answer to your question, I don't know if I could sit down with these guys and go, yeah. like, we knew several of the people that they got. And, yeah. uh, oh, my God. So if, what if they brought, uh, so you don't think if they, someone contacted you through someone else and this and said, hey, there's, there's somebody that was in a, in a firefight, you know, in 1968, 69 in this area. And, uh, and you say, oh, that was me and my team and <laughs> something maybe catastrophic happened in that firefight. Um, and they said, hey, this guy, well, he wants to, he wants to talk to you. He wants to break bread. He wants to, you know, well, say maybe, now, maybe even say sorry or. Yeah. Now, I don't. I don't know. Like that's an interesting thing because I mean, you might be in that position at some point. I mean, I don't know how long it'll be before <sighs> someone of uh, of, uh, of my generation is is contacted by someone <laughs> who planted a you know roadside bomb. I mean, this, this oh, yeah. hey, paneled roadside bomb in Iraq and this day and this area, and then now it's thirty years later and they want to meet you or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Sure. I well, it's, if that ever happened, I'm sure that now. I'm so much more mature. <laughs> <laughs> always, always, always open to, to for a discussion with anybody, you know, <sighs> and learn about the experiences. But even in your books, like, you know, with the, your last book, you're talking about the POW and MIA situation. Yeah. I mean, that just brings back yeah. all kinds of issues. Did they have them or not? And to this day, we still don't have a clear answer on that. Yeah. And, and, and there's been work going on it. And of course, when, um, when the walls came down, there was that brief period of time when Americans got in to look at some of the records mm. in Russia. 
And that's just something that's another whole arena of research that I, I just ran out of time to research it. But Interesting. there are people that know a little bit more about that. And again, uh, you've gone through some other books that I'm not even aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, but who knows? I might that's, be doing a little more research on this in the future. Uh, <laughs> it's a possibility. Uh, but that, I mean, that is, it's, it's fascinating. And then you think of it in general terms of, uh, politicians and, uh, strategic level relationships. And you look back and see, oh, they said there were no American, uh, POWs alive in Vietnam. True. Laos, Cambodia. There are other places that they could have been. And yeah, probably because, were, and, and so you have politicians on our side saying, "Oh no, they we, there's no there's no there's no POWs in Vietnam." The mm. whole Henry Kissinger thing that you really detail so well, okay. and again, without saying anything about Laos or Cambodia, not even wanting to talk about it. So we know, uh, besides our fifty, we've documented at least eighty-three aviators from uh, Marine Corps, Air Force, Army yeah. that were gunned down supporting our teams that are part of the MIAs, the 1,578. And some of those, there had to be. We had intel reports on it. There was all kinds of different efforts to get in. And and there was bogus things. You know, Soldier of Fortune magazine with Robert K. Brown had a very serious effort. He put several hundred thousand dollars into an effort to a report of a camp that was in Laos. But by the time they get there, get boots on the ground, their their primary source turned up to be a scoundrel uh, as opposed to somebody with a real story. Interesting. Oh, it's just heartbreaking stuff. You know, the front, uh, the first part of uh, Uncommon Valor. Did you watch Uncommon Valor when it came out with Gene Hackman back in, I think it was 80, 83 or 84, I want to say? Yes, but I, don't ask me about it because that was too long ago. <laughs> My last synapse. Yeah. His, his lost team on that one. <laughs> well, in the, uh, you know, it was one of the first Return to Vietnam oh, yeah. films and I uh, did a great job, uh, I thought, with it. And at the time, I'm at, I'm 10 years old, 9 years old, 10 years old. And so I'm just enthralled sure. by this. And, and for uh, just randomly, I happened to see them filming uh, of the scene at the beginning, the Vietnam scene, when the guys are running across these rice paddies, and there's fog, and there's Hueys, and it's slow motion. Uh, John Milius was was involved in this, and yeah. it's, uh, and it's just, I mean, and as a kid, it's it's a heartbreaking scene, and it's, it's so powerful. Um, and people kind of discount it as, oh, you know, it's a Vietnam War movie or whatever else, but um, but anyway, I saw them filming it in uh, in Kauai. No, yeah. really? Yeah, so I got to see it, and I was like, what are all these, what are all these Hueys doing out here? Because I knew what they were. That, yeah, you know, yeah. I was old sure. enough to know that stuff and building the models you know and yeah, stuff yeah. like that um so i got to see them filming that uh, uh that scene which was amazing but um but then uh the next few scenes are, are gene hackman and he's traveling around southeast asia trying to get information because his son is is missing in action and he's uh he's, he's paying people and but it shows the people that are giving him oh. that information or giving him something and it's not what he thought it was like it it, it shows that visually it's going on today Within the past week, I've had two different people or three people now on social media come to me and say, here's a picture. It's a, one of my favorite pictures of me at CCN in uniform with a beret and everything in camp. It's just a posing thing. And I'm identified as John Robertson. Now, he went down with a King Bee in early May of 68, a few days before McIntyre and I arrived at FOB1. 
And we know the circumstances of that H-34 going down. And there's no way he survived it. But the story is, he survived it, and they show a picture of me saying that uh, I'm either him or involved somehow. This guy survived. He lived in the jungles. He speaks Vietnamese only, forgot English. Some kind of contrived story, but they do this phony bullshit. Yeah. It's like, oh, man. Yeah. If I could just get through the social media <laughs> internet there and go choke somebody. Yeah. I, you know, I think you're not the you're not the first person to, to want to do that uh this today. Um yeah. let's see, there's also this. Let's see where it's at. There we go. Robert Here K. Brown. Robert K. Brown, who I've met uh a few times. Uh and yeah, I am soldier of fortune dancing with devils right here. Uh did you know him in Vietnam or is it afterward? Afterwards. Afterward, okay. You know, don't forget, he's he's one of the few Green Beret officers that got dismissed from two assignments in Vietnam. Oh, really? And he's proud of it. Yeah. Oh, not good for him. It's what? a matter of principle in his mind. <laughs> hey, good <laughs> on him. Oh, uh, yeah. So he started Soldier Fortune Magazine, for those uh, for those wondering. Um, and uh, he's, I mean... He stayed in it all these all oh, yeah. these years, over all these years, getting into different countries and and people think ah, Soldier Fortune magazine. They had some, the probably the some of the only reporting Absolutely. from war zones around the world from the early the days in Afghanistan the with yeah. the Russians. Yep. Then South America, Central mm-hmm. America. Yep. And Africa. Yep. And I was yep. reading all that stuff back in the day, and I was just, that was the only place I was getting it. And, uh, you know, and I was you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, and, uh, and I was, I was reading all those things and looking at, looking at all the, the review, the, looking at all the weaponry, of course. And of I remember course. The, I remember the HK ad they had in the eighties. It was a great one. This guy climbing out of the mud, you know, and it says, uh, in a world of compromise, oh, yeah. some men don't. <laughs> yes. I just like that. That was, that was good stuff. And so I worry about some of the influences. Like those are my influences growing up, uh, <laughs> along with popular culture, Rocky and Rambo and commando and predator and all those, those oh, yeah. things. And then the, then the Westerns that I'd watch with my, with my dad. And, sure. and so I think those were, you know, those, those they were powerful. And Absolutely. I'm, very, I'm very curious as to, uh, what, what my kids will look back on as their influences oh. today with all the social media and everything sure. else. And I think, for me, it was still close enough to Vietnam where it was, uh, it wasn't ancient history. No. And it was, uh, I mean, they were just starting to make films about it and they were just starting to, to capitalize on it, starting with like the, the deer hunter and then, uh, apocalypse now. And there's some other ones too, but those were the, you know, the big ones. And then, uh, the return to Vietnam films and then platoon, of course, uh, which changes things and you have hamburger Hill and, oh, and yeah. uh, and full metal jacket. So you have these, these different, and the best um, Vietnam movie, which we were soldiers once. That was more was accurate. Gone. Yeah, a little bit later. And the other ones that got it wrong, a lot of things wrong. And Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you can pick. Do you pick out all that stuff? And uh, does, it, it. does it ruin it for you? Or do you try to like. Oh, I hate yeah. Deer Hunter. Oh, yeah. I know. Everybody it's goes, that's a, well, a great one. movie. No, it's not. I think that he get his yeah. uniform right. I know. Some of the basics. That is very, even as a, when I saw that as a, and I probably didn't see it as a kid kid, but I probably was, let's say, freshman in high school or something yeah. so i mean i'm whatever uh but yeah Closer you know manhood than kidhood yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you i mean you know that that's what are they, they wearing these things right yeah. yeah you know because i was reading soldier fortune i was reading everything i possibly could to educate myself back then and you see like how are these messing this up uh and then haircuts a lot of the time also and oh, just yeah. little things that uh like, like anyway but uh but you met him after the war how did you guys link up um and my brother and sister both lived in Denver okay, in the early 80s. And so I flew out there a couple times to be with them or, or we drove out. 
and uh, Soldier of Fortune. I knew they were based out of Boulder. Yeah, uh, incredible, oh, incredibly yeah. Boulder, places, Colorado, of Boulder, all places. Yeah, with all the all the left leaning <laughs> stuff there. Here's Robert K. Brown, like oh. a counterbalance yep. to, to that. But so he was there. So I finally went to the headquarters and went there a couple times. I finally got in, got to meet him. Said, "Hey, you know, are you interested?" We, there's this thing called SOG. He knew about it, of course. He goes, well, if you want to write about it. I said, well, I'm working at a newspaper in San Diego. I said, if the editors know I write for Soldier of Fortune, I'm done. Yeah. He goes, well, how about a nom de gere? So I picked one, Isaac Stotts, and then um, we did several articles for Soldier of Fortune. That wow. began, I think, in either 86 or early 87. Okay, and I'm sure I, I read them back then. Indeed. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I, and I am trying to find a full set of Soldier of Fortune magazines. So, well, we'll connect you um, with Bob. That way you can get a quick answer. Oh, perfect. Perfect. I think, I, I think a full set's tough to come by. It is. Um, so, and I had so many over all these moves. They've, I mean, ah, so, fr so frustrating, all the things just disappear in a move. And you're like, where on earth could this have gone? But then you realize how many times you moved in the military, how many people are packing up oh. boxes. Like, who, it's just chaos so uh as you saw it's still chaos we were just inside Indeed. you saw it still like that but uh but yeah i want to get that full and i had a i had a lifetime subscription to full Soldier oh Fortune magazine. yes the source it, spot. And, uh, it is it is in uh, in 2000 <laughs> i think they offered it and it was 150 bucks so i was a e5 e4 or something like that and yeah yeah i was like oh yeah because that was that's big money back then you had to absolutely. think about it but i was like oh yeah absolutely. you know what i think yeah. a year long subscription? that's why i didn't do it <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I think like a year subscription was probably like twenty seven ninety nine or something like that, yeah. 30 bucks. Uh, but I was like, wow, lifetime subscription, 150 bucks. And so I did it. And uh, so from that point on, I had every one. Uh, and I, and the, from the ones from the, the 80s, I had intermittently because I didn't have a subscription and I would just get one as a kid and I'd hold on to it. And then the ones from the 70s, you could back order back then. And oh, so, yeah. but I didn't have any money. So I was just looking. So I was going by cover only. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that one, that looks like a cool cover. And then I could get that uh, one. And so I'd order some of those back issues. But, uh, but then... Then they got bought. They got bought by a company at some point along the line, and I'll mess this up by a couple of years, but give or take, let's yeah. say around 2010 or something. And uh, and my subscription stopped. My lifetime subscription stopped, and I thought, wait a second, I'm still alive. Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. Still to this day, <laughs> I'm still I'm still kicking. And uh, and I contacted them, and they said, nope, sorry, we got bought by somebody else. Or and so they they didn't they didn't honor their lifetime subscription. The new company, not Robert K. Brown, but the. Yeah, and yeah, I almost yeah. told them I, I I met him a couple times, <clears throat> but I was like, you know what? No, he's uh, he sold that thing years ago, and whatever else, you know, whatever arrangement, uh, I'm not going to bother. <laughs> but yeah. it is a sore spot. I did think about it. Yeah, and then we did an interview with Bob for Sawcast. Oh, nice. We have a... Uh, I'm going to listen to that. Thanks to Jocko Willink, we have Sawcast, uh, where we've, uh, we've interviewed 45 people, and huh. and we've got... They've posted 37. Bob, Robert K. Brown is Robert one K. of Brown. our interviews. I'm going to go listen to to that, to the, oh, yeah. to that one for sure. And, what a character. Uh, he is. The times I've met him is a character, the stories. too. Did, and I, I, I think... Did you guys, you had the the, uh, the headphones on for his interview? Absolutely. Yeah. It yeah. made all the difference in the world. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, he's been behind the, some very loud weaponry over the years. Well, yeah. His uh, ears have, have vacated. They yes. Don't listen very, they can't hear us all. Yeah. He's yep. 90 plus, but he's still gone. He just got back from Raton. He takes his friends out for a big, they go down there, go hunting. Wow. 
at Raton, and once Amazing. a year, once or twice a year, he goes out. He goes out, blast away. Good for him. Yeah, good on him. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what, I mean, when you talk about somebody who just who doesn't compromise and who lived a life with from the outside looking in anyway. Oh yeah, like didn't let their life become dictated by anybody else, any other expectations, uh, and just lived a true life, true to them. I, I think that. And wants to report him. the essence of what was really going on on the ground in the different mm-hmm. AOs. I mean, like even in Rhodesia in the 70s, mm-hmm. I mean, we had a guy who was in SOG who was one of the CIA legends, George Washington Bacon III, who was killed in Rhodesia. He had been with us in SOG. He was a medic with us. Wow. And he was a magnet. He was on the ground. He always had a lot of combat with his teams. Interesting. And he joined the agency. And he's up on there. He's one of their stars. Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah. And Bob wrote about that. Wow. One of the first to write about him. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of history in those pages, Ooh. which is why I want to get the, every single edition. And uh, and I will at some point. Somehow I'll figure I'll figure it out. <laughs> but uh, And didn't they also, didn't they offer some sort of a reward for somebody who would defect with... Uh, like an MI-17 or something like that from uh, Central America in <laughs> they the mid-80s. They had a few of them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I love that. I mean, oh, sure. who, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's fantastic. Jeez. Um, but uh, PWMA issue, that's something that he was very involved <clears throat> with, obviously. Um, it's something we still don't have yeah, answers to. And he put his money where his mouth was. He wrote yeah. about it, sent people there. He's physically there in Thailand when they were trying to negotiate on that. But uh, to no avail. Yeah. Did you guys ever get any uh, any intel about uh, Russian advisors? How prevalent was information about what uh, uh, Russia or the Soviet Union at the time was doing in uh, in Vietnam? Well, we knew they're there. Uh, we had, uh, in fact, George Miller, who was a Scarface pilot. What was a Scarface? I was going to ask you that. Oh, earlier. sorry, Marine Corps uh, HML three six seven. What is that? What is that? Uh, it's a heavy, medium, light helicopter. I think. That's Marine Corps nomenclature. I apologize yeah. to any Marine aviator. And people are offended HML right now. Wrong. Yeah. yeah. But it is Scarface. Perfect. And they were attached to SOG for mm. most of the eight-year war, secret war. Okay. And they were just, they always came when we rang the bell. Um, so George Miller was a pilot, did a gun run on the DMZ, saw a Russian in uniform, and by the time he turned around to go back to blow his ass up, he was gone. And the jungle mm. couldn't find him. And then we had um, other sightings. Uh, when in between my tours of duty with uh, RT Idaho, Lynn Black was running the team with the Frenchman Doug Letourneau, and they um, saw a Russian, a Caucasian, but he's far off, too far away to get with any of the weapons they mm-hmm. carried, and they couldn't get any attack air to get to him. Mm-hmm. But they saw him, and other teams that that talked to him, and they. And Pat Watkins, who is um, alive here today in Taylorsville, mm. he'll be 85 in a few days, and he's one of our senior recon guys that we all respected. He told a story of the early days of a recon team that was up north, the target of the DMZ, called in the base, and the base said, the, the King Bees will pick you up in one hour. Well, they got through the jungle, they got to the LZ, they're approaching it within 15 minutes, and there was a helicopter there already. They called back to base and said, hey, the helicopter's here. He says, not us. The king be still en route. Huh. It was a Russian helicopter trying to pick up the team. 
No kidding. Who knows what that would have been? Seriously. So something happened where the helicopter finally left because they realized it wasn't the king bees. Jeez. Oh, yeah. And we had other other people that have seen Russians. Yeah. The aircraft as well as the, some of the helicopters. But uh, those are the few stories I know about from talking yeah. to people firsthand on it. As far as you know, we never killed or captured any Russian advisors. No, not that I'm aware of. And, and you know, uh, now if you, if you Google Russia secret war Vietnam, they had a reunion about 15 years ago, and it's, it's recorded. No. And they have the reunion somewhere in, in Russia where there's over 3,000 Russians that served in their secret war. Majority were uh, cannon cockers, anti-aircraft guys, some pilots, mm. of course. But they also had people that came south. And uh, in my third book, Saw Chronicles, Volume 1, there's a story of one of our medics who was on Operation Tailwind in 1970. Mm-hmm. And when they were coming out on extraction on the CH-53 Deltas, um, they were getting anti-aircraft fire. So 20 years later, the medic is in one of the... Uzbekistan, one of the stands, and he's going through classes, and he wore his SF pin, hmm. and a young Russian lieutenant said, oh, you're an SF. They get to talking back and forth, and he said, well, you ever in Laos? And so the medic, Doc Patrick, goes, yeah. He said, my dad was too. What'd your dad do? Well, my dad was artillery, and he had the anti-aircraft, so his dad was could have been one of the people who tried to shoot down Doc Padgett 20 years earlier. <laughs> that is wild. Oh, I know. Yeah. Jeez. Because they, uh, after Johnson had the bombing pause in 68, yeah. a lot of heavy equipment came further south for more anti-aircraft. Uh, and, you know, it was just the the air war picked up. Yeah. Much more challenging for us, Jeez. for the helicopters and everything. That's incredible. Did, uh, oh, man... Well, there's a uh, there's a photo that I have. I posted kind of maybe a year, year and a half ago, something like that. Um, and it's a Russian Spetsnaz guy, or you think it's a Russian Spetsnaz guy in Afghanistan um, in uh, during the, the Soviet time. And uh, they brought a, uh, a Soviet actress in, and she's in a bikini, and she's shooting uh, like an AK or something. And uh, it's a black and white photo. And the guy has no shirt on. He's wearing like UDT shorts kind of thing. And, and he's got this watch. And I was just kind of curious about it and i posted the the photo and said how does this play into my next novel you know yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of to tease it and uh and then someone contacted me and said hey do you think this is the same guy and uh, i had some other photos of somebody now he's in a suit and uh, i think he's in moscow somewhere and, no and that's the same watch and the profile it's yours maybe a decade difference yeah, yeah you know it's hard to tell but uh profile looks similar and so i'm just it's uh it's it's interesting point being like when you uh connecting dots between not necessarily generations but uh but conflicts that are separate distinct yet share a connection um so that's uh yeah it's uh it's amazing when you make those kind of connections and, and uh, well yeah and and dots like that speaking of watches look what are we wearing today look at that oh, yeah Seiko, Seiko, yep Nice Vietnam era from the sixties. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and this is the, this is the sixty six nineteen. So I'm collecting the different uh, Seikos from from Vietnam and the other watches as as well. But uh, DC Vintage Watches found this for me. And uh, how do you say the? Is it Waltham the, the compass? It's a, it was a compass from the. Oh, that's, that's, that I don't know. I, I never. I never specific. liked it. 
You didn't, you didn't I do did, it? I didn't care. I just like to watch <laughs> because I, I depend on the regular compass, which okay. also could be illuminated at night if yeah. you needed it. Um, no, the watch was good enough. There you go. But I, so I'm sorry. I don't know what the nomenclature was. I think it's a Waltham. It. I think that's what this is, but it's a so period. It, yeah. You know, specific, <laughs> you know, correct thing. But, uh, so I wore that for you today and you have yours on, but your original, Indeed. your original is in the bottom. Is it the Atlantic? Atlantic Ocean. Atlantic yeah. Ocean. It's a good down to shore every summer, you know. Look for it. Always wore my Seiko. Yeah. And never took it off in Vietnam. You showered, shaved, go to, go to battle with it. Loved it. And at night, you had to put the gloves on, keep the gloves over top mm. of it because the luminous dial was bright enough. So we could always do our comma check right on time at midnight. Yeah. Man. And then it survived yeah. all those missions. It'd be lost in But <laughs> what were you doing when you lost it? Body surfing. Wow. Lost to the I'm Atlantic. Too, I, couldn't, I couldn't afford a surfboard. I was just too cheap. <laughs> I was too putsy off the board. So I, I preferred body surfing. Oh. Man. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I made it through all that and the Atlantic Ocean body surfing claims the Seiko. So if anybody finds it, um, give me a call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us know. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. But you have this one now. Got one so. now from a friend of mine back in Trenton, New Jersey. Awesome. He survived my school buses when I was driving the school buses. Chris got it for me. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. And that's what you do when you, when you, but before we get, get to what you did when you got out, um, <clears throat> that first firefight, when you think about back to that first, that first firefight, um, do you remember the feelings and emotions attached to it, or do you remember the specifics of the the movements and who made what calls and like what what do you when you think back on that first firefight, what are your memories? Well, for me personally, my first thought was I was really upset because I was opening my can of apricots from the sea rats. We'd been on the ground for a day and a half. I was just getting ready to break into my mm-hmm. sea rats, and that's why you know. And so when a firefight started. Thankfully, Sal, who was the our counterpart on the team, Sal and Hep, who was our interpreter. So uh, we had the one zero was the American team leader, one one assistant, one two was the radio operator, and um, zero one was Sal, the counterpart. Mm-hmm. And um, Hep and Sal opened fire on the NVA as they and as they came up on our team, and we were on a little knoll, so that they could only mass so many at once. Mm-hmm. Again, the way things unfold. So for me personally, in the first couple of seconds, I was upset because I spilled some of the nectar on my car 15 as I set it down to get involved in a firefight where Hep and Sal, Fook, and the other team are all like blasting away at the NVA. I'm like fumbling around my apricots. But then the firefight went on. And so we went through. That was one where we were in contact for a couple of hours. They kept coming at us. And then we finally got TAC air in. And then worked attack air with A1s with napalm. And at very last light, Captain Tin came in, hovered for 10 minutes. Mm. And he took 48 rounds in that helicopter that night. And when we left, it was down to the last magazine, last hand grenade. Jeez. And we, we, we carried over 600 rounds back then. Jeez. And so at one point during that mission, um, Don Wilkin, who was the team leader, came over to me because we really were trying to get the comms. And we, we I'm on the radio for two hours just saying, anybody, Derek 10, emergency frequency, all the other frequencies, nobody responded. Yeah. So we finally got some cover coming. But before that, Don goes, look what they're doing. And so we're on a knoll, and the NVA we were killing, they began to stack up the dead bodies because they were trying to get the dead bodies to climb on top of to shoot down at us. Mm. 
So at that moment in time, in answer to your question, that's the thing I remember when Don comes to me and said, look at what they're doing. It's like, these guys are stepping on their dead comrades to get to us. Yeah. Holy shit. And then another time, I know we always talk about field of vision, tunnel vision. So I'm shooting at the NVA. They're coming out. And most of the times, we would see the AKs or boots and shoot them back into the jungle, five, ten feet away. So I'm focused. And Fook, who was our point man, I thought when I'm shooting that he's shooting over my shoulder and supporting me. And I'm really unhappy because the car 15 can really hurt your ears. Yeah. I'm the combo guy. My bad ear gets worse or worse. Oh. <laughs> so we go through the firefight. The next day we do the debrief. And after we're done with all that, we're talking. And I said to Hep, our interpreter, I said, tell Fook, you know, what was he doing shooting? And Fook goes, you dummy. He says, I wasn't shooting with you up the hill on the right were NVA coming to kill you, and I got them before they killed you. Jeez. It's like, oh, my God. So those are the two things I remember, as well as Captain Tin. He hovered in that helicopter um, in elephant grass. He couldn't land, and it took us 10 minutes to go about 20 yards in elephant grass, just going through it, falling down, running over each other, the firefight, getting a little bit of security, throw the guys up on a helicopter. At one point, I looked up, and Captain Tin's sitting there because the H-34 is higher up. Okay. The pilots are up there, and the okay. the carriage is down below with one door on the right side. Mm. He's sitting there going like, okay, guys, anytime you're ready. <laughs> cool as a cucumber, Incredible. getting whacked 48 times. Jeez. And none of our guys got hit. Jeez. And so, um, and then for me... That was the first major firefight. And so, again, as we interacted with our little people, we say that affectionately. Um, Sal, as we finally left, Sal looked over at me and gave me a nod. Mm. So after being on the team for all those months, I earned his respect on that mission. Yeah. And so from that day forward, it was, it was a different relationship. Yeah. But uh, then I became the team leader after that. Jeez. But yeah, and then, you know, it's just like these odd situations. Like the other thing I remember is as we're leaving, here's this beautiful dark green jungle with all these pretty little red flashes <laughs> and red red little yeah. things coming up to the helicopter, right? It looked like Jeez. Christmas. And it's like the jungle with them just trying to shoot us down. Wow. Unbelievable. But we got out. Gosh. Thanks to Captain Ten. That's and incredible. the Kingbys did that time and time again. There's so many Green Berets that are still alive today, thanks to our counterparts, you know. They were just absolutely fearless with those big birds. We like the, the H-34s better than the Ueys because they could take more hits. Okay. Go hear us tell them. Jeez. Oh, man. Let me tell you about First Form. They have amazing products. My personal favorites are the Protein Sticks, and the Micro Factor Daily Nutrient Packs. And why do I like them so much? Because First Form makes it super easy to get quality protein and nutrients on the go. And I always seem to be on the go. While their products are top-notch quality, what I like the most about them are their values. First Form is so much more than a supplement company. They are deeply committed to both American jobs and your personal well-being. At First Form, they value people. In fact, 
The only thing they've automated is a tape machine, a symbol of their dedication to providing jobs and making lives better. They care about employing people, nurturing their growth, and genuinely improving lives. Their mission is simple. First Form is there to help you reach your fitness and wellness goals. They believe in a partnership where, if you meet them halfway, they'll help you make progress. Go to firstform.com slash jackcar to receive free shipping on any orders over $75. That's one, the number one, S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash jackcar. Once again, that's one, the number one, S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash jackcar and receive free shipping on any orders over $75. So in the, when it's daylight, um, how dark does it get in some of the places that you, that you were operating? And then did it come a time if, after the sun goes down or when it's nautical twilight or where your sights were ineffective on those weapons? Um, and then what did you do at, at that point? Because you're just using iron sights on these Only. cars. Yeah. yeah. No, well, once it got dark, we were done. Yeah. We would try to be in... R-R-O-N, the rest overnight spot. And um, so it was dark. You just, it's one of those, you put your hands in front of your face and you could feel the hand, the breeze, but you don't see it. Jeez. Oh, yeah. And uh, that was the uh, situation. And at night, we would always try to be settled. A couple times we would move, like once we had, uh, we got inserted, set up an ambush. We had a wiretap running. We had, we gave a uh, spider was then flying cubby, which was our, our fac. Mm-hmm. And so spider came over. I gave him the code said, Hey, we'll have a POW. I'll see you back at the primary in one hour. And then spider goes, don't move. Don't breathe. I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see the mountain you're on, let alone the LZ mm-hmm. says, get your team and get the high ground. So about that time we hear the tanks above us on another trail and then the people the enemy activity because before that they're walking up and down the trail we had come up the mountain i pushed the team really hard we got to the mountain caved this big trail crossed it sal put up the wiretap and we had the claymore Mm -hmm. um ambush set up so it kills everybody and the dead center is c4 to knock them out to get the pow pick them up go home get our bonus and so Spider ruined the whole day. It's like, I can't see the mountain you're on. So then we e and that night, and it was late. We came to a stream. They had hundreds of people coming for us with lanterns and dogs Jeez. coming up the mountain. But they didn't realize how far we had come. Mm. And we came to the stream. We went up the stream in the dark, and then finally went up the bank, and we set up our RON for the night. And they came up looking for us. And around about midnight, one of the a team of two guys walked past us. The lantern went out. They ran out of fuel, and they came back. And when they were walking down the stream, that's when the guy came in and crawled up the bank and touched my boot because Hep had coughed. And so the guy just came up the hillside slowly. <laughs> and only when, the, only when the wind blew, he was really good. He came up, and I had my car 15 pointed at him. He touched my boot. I heard him catch his breath. And then he waited for the wind to blow, and then he moved back down. He and his buddy moved out. And uh, first light, we headed, we headed up the mountain. So all day we went up, 
And then the second day on the ground that night, that's when we heard Russians coming in with their Russian resupply in Laos. The aircraft came in, the jungle lit up with a LZ or a drop zone two mountains away. And it was like the most bizarre scenario looking Broadway lighting up. Really? Over there. So we're, we're on the air calling all the frequencies. Give me some aircraft. We got Russians in the air. But we couldn't get anybody. Like the police, when you need them, you can't get yeah, them. Yeah, you know? it's, yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> but that's another example of the Russians. Cause we heard them, and we saw them do the resupply Jeez. in Laos. No, what are you thinking when this guy touches your boot? Holy shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, I, you know. We what is he thinking to, when he touches your boot? Oh, the pucker factor was minus zero. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Because, and again, it's like you don't want to shoot because they're still looking for us. If there's any shots fired, that would draw his compadres in. Mm-hmm. So I waited. He left. We left. I thought that was the right thing to do at the time. What story do you think he told his friends when he got back? <laughs> I just touched this guy's boot. And he, like, what is he? I wonder what he was thinking. He may not have told anybody because then the, the 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 young lieutenant from the North Vietnamese Army go, "Why didn't you kill him?" Yeah, maybe he's gonna reach out to you now on Instagram. Uh, yeah, reach out to you. He's, he's gonna tell. I was the guy. Touch your touch your boot. If you touch my size ten regular, let me know, brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Reach on out. Maybe that's yeah. somebody you could have a beer with. There you know? we go. So uh, depending on what he did uh, before or after that, I guess. But indeed. Oh my gosh. Just, just wild. And then the the so how many POW um, missions did you go on? Um, well, on that mission there, we had another primary. But Don and I said the secondary was always if you ever had any intel or if you're close to what could be an American POW camp in Laos uh-huh. or Cambodia, that's what we wanted to get to, to try. But um, we were compromised on the second day of our mission. Had to firefight and everything. So we never got there. Yeah. Um, that was the one time specifically because Dom was adamant. We were always like, you wanted that kind of a mission. Yeah. But in my personal experience, not not me. Others had it. Well, Pat Eddington had the biggest one. What did he, what was his? That was the one where the compromise. He goes yeah. out and the, and the NVA comes on a frequency tell. Gotcha. You got your choice. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, how, how about uh, pilot, pilot type recovery operation? Like uh, before they get captured type of a thing. How many of those did you guys go on or what were, what were some of those ops? For me personally, I didn't go on any. We twice were in route and got called off. Once mm-hmm. we were up in North Vietnam, they turned us around and came back. And then another time it was up west of the DMZ in Laos. And uh, they called us back for whatever reason. I just forget. Yeah. Um, whereas Lynn Black, uh, when I was back in the States, Lynn with the Frenchman, Went in on a bright light that was a down, uh, I think it was a, an O2, like the push-pull yeah. Cessna. Okay. And it had, it crash-landed, and it hit a berm. And so um, the Air Force sent over a Jolly Green Giant, picked up the team. They went in under fire. They get to the aircraft, and the two men were embedded in the dashboard of the aircraft because the impact was so severe. And they were both dead. So they took the watches and anything mm. they could take from them while under fire. They couldn't get the bodies out. They had the body bags, but they just couldn't get them out. And so the South Vietnamese, Sal, Hep, Phuc, were in, in the middle of a gun battle. Yeah. 
And at one point, Doug looked across to Lynn and said, we're not going to get out of here. The incoming fire was that intense. Jeez. But they were able to get out thanks to TAC Air. The Jolly Green came back in, and they picked them up on strings and pulled them out. And then when Doug was coming out, the A1 came underneath him with a gun run. Jeez. <laughs> That's how close they worked <laughs> to the jungle. Oh, yeah. We I mean, love those A1s. Jeez. I mean... I mean, it's it's similar, but it sounds. I mean, I, I can't. You guys imagine. have your A10s, yeah, your warthogs. Oh, oh, incredible! But we have our little A1s that were propeller driven, and they could stay on station for several hours. Yeah, and they could they could carry more ordnance or as much as a B17 bomber. Jeez, and that's the way they're just a big husky aircraft. Yeah. They brought everything: napalm, CBUs, machine guns, bombs. Whatever if you and they would they could stay on station and once they knew where you were, they could yeah. bring it in close, really close. And the NVA hated the Sky Raiders. I can't imagine coming. I mean, I can't. I can think about it because I've thought about it a lot. But um, the difference, it just seems coming home from that, <laughs> and then moving on to the private sector or going to school or whatever you're going to do when you got home after you just had a plane to a gun run under your feet as you're being, you know, <laughs> snatched out of the jungle and the whole thing's erupting. And oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it becomes part of your experience and, you know, hopefully you build on it and move forward. But, I mean, that's intense. Oh, absolutely. And those A1s, I mean, I, I'll, I'll never forget the first A1 napalm run. Uh, so I always assumed all A1 Sky Raider pilots were Southern because the first guy, <laughs> now y'all put your head down. <laughs> it's crispy critter time. I go, oh, okay, we did. Very calm. And it was the first time you smelled human flesh burning. Okay. And it just so close to it just sucks the air out of your lungs. Jeez. Uh, but the NVA hated it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that saves us was attack air. I got to drop napalm once in uh in training. Really? Yeah, night 20, 20, or 1999, 98, something like that during my first uh Time going to Fallon, Nevada, for the uh, the school out there, learning how to control air. Oh yeah, um, but I think they stopped. I could be totally wrong. I don't think I ever did after that. Um, but uh, but yeah, got to got to do it. In no, I always talked to the contemporary guys from Iraq, Afghanistan. Yeah, like, hey, what kind? Of, no napalm. Yeah, how could you do a firefight without napalm? Yeah, yeah, I got to. Yeah, I got to do it. But for some reason, that was the only <laughs> only time. Uh, yeah, I've been. I went back to that school uh, a couple of different occasions and oh, got right? to drop some bigger. You know, because the school would change, or you'd have to go and uh, you have to requalify or something like that. Stay current right. on some of those some of those things. So I was a communicator early on, and then even when I became an officer, I still went back to to stay current while I was taking guys downrange. Um, but uh, but yeah, napalm. The only time I did it was a uh, was early on, and I. Think I think, I'm pretty sure it was before September 11th. I think it was yeah. 98, 99, one of my first times out there, I believe, anyway. But, uh, man, I mean, you guys were getting getting after it. Uh, how about, did you do any firefights at night? Did any, did, uh, did, uh, were you ever in a position where you had to put up uh, a loom to be able to see your sights, see the enemy? Um, one of my last missions was February 1970. Um, we had been on the ground for uh, two days. <clears throat> and the second day, we were, our mission was to get to uh, NVA bridges along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm. And they, at that time, they were developing these bridges that were underwater. So somehow, they put the bridges in. So mm -hmm. from the air, it would look like a stream mm -hmm. but or some kind of water. 
and they, they could drive across it. So they wanted us to go in. We went in with uh, C4, et cetera, so that find a bridge, photograph it, and then wait and blow it up when there's a truck on it. Jeez. Well, we never got to it. We were heading down uh, a mountain range because the uh, we got inserted into a valley, which was the wrong LZ, but and we lost out of Thailand. So we moved through the valley that night, got into a thicket, and they came for us again with lanterns and dogs. And we had an NVA that came up to about 10 feet from us, but Sal forced us back deeper into the thicket. I was like complaining. I had torn my fatigues. I had cuts on my hands, but Sal was right. And the one NVA that came up, there was like these fingers that came down the mountainside, mm. and we had gone past several of these fingers, and we went up one into the thicket. And so by the time the NVA, uh, one of the two soldiers that came up, we could hear them. Mm. And they were, they were firing occasionally into some of those thickets. But the guy that came up to ours didn't fire in. And then that night, he came up and left. Thanks to Sal, we never had no contact. So next morning, they were in the valley looking for us. And we had to climb up a mountain, straight up this mountain for all day. We got to the top, stayed overnight. In the morning, we woke up. We found this field of orchids. This beautiful field. We the guys cut them off. They were putting them in their ears and carrying on. Everybody except Sal. Mm. Sal was not happy that they were carrying on. Mm. <laughs> me too. But me and John Engels. So John was the one one. So to get to your answer, we had moved parallel to the ridge line, went down, and we came to a plateau about halfway down the mountain. So we were gonna try to get down closer to the mm. bridge that we knew was there. And um we took a break. At the end of the break, John led it down the hill with Chow. They made contact. NVA were coming up towards us. So we had a little plateau with a steep mountain here and a really steep down the hill with valleys on two other sides and mm -hmm. one on the back side of this one with one large finger. And so uh, we were up there. And uh, that night we went through four specters. Jeez. Yeah. And... Uh, so the first one came on, and so we used to use our strobe light, put it in the M79, aim it. And so we mm -hmm. aimed it at the specter. He says, I can't see her. I can't see her. There's so many lights. They were coming down this trail. With, if you looked up this trail, it was like dozens of lanterns. Mm. And they were coming up the other trail where we had the first firefight. Yeah. And then there are trucks in the valley with lights. Wow. And on the plateau across from the valley, there are trucks with lights bringing people. They're all coming to our little mountaintop. Wow. So I, got, I told Spectre, I'm on this side of the mountain. Yeah. I put him on the other side. So I'm turning my light out. You get the rest. And he could see the little plateau that we were on. Uh -huh. And he marched up that hill and just wiped them out. And he ran out of ordinance. They dropped some flares so we could see what was going on in the valley. Second one came on, and then we directed him in from the strobe light. Okay. Wherever there's enemy activity, and they kept coming at us all night. So by the third and fourth one, near the end, the clouds would come in, and the NVA would come at us at night. So we'd throw a hand grenade, and then we started getting low on hand grenades. So Sal and Chow went out, got a bunch of rocks, and came back, and then we'd throw a rock. You hear them scampering away. 
throw another rock, but they wouldn't scamper quite as far. Then you throw a hand grenade and let them know you're serious. In between, the specters coming out. Wow. Oh, yeah. So, and we used the flares on it. We, did, we didn't fire a round until in the morning when we got distracted. Mm. They were shooting at us from the jungle. And we fired back. We went back almost with a full load. Jeez. So, in answer to your question, no firefight, <laughs> but we had flares of plenty and went through three or four specters that night. Wow. You know, I'd never heard putting the strobe into the M79 before. Yeah, and that's the way we directed it yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. That's Primitive, and it worked. Yeah. Because the, <clears throat> I forget if it was the third or fourth one, he came in, he couldn't, they were so close to us, and we have been doing a hand grenade rock thing for a yeah. while, but we we couldn't connect because of the cloud cover. But finally, he's the one that came in saw us, and I wanted it within 25 meters. Mm-hmm. This is 1970. And he goes, I can't bring it. I've got to do it more than that. He says, I will only do it if you accept full responsibility for any casualties I inflict. So we know they're crawling. Sal is giving me the sign. Mm-hmm. They're close. So I said, I accept full responsibility. Like, get those motherfuckers. And then he opened fire and just marched it back. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Man. And when we left in the morning, we saw so many blood trails, but no bodies. They pulled them all back. Huh. Unbelievable. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Just another day in SOG. Yes, another day in SOG. <laughs> Man, uh, you mentioned the Frenchman a couple times, and for those who My haven't listened buddy. to uh, other other podcasts or didn't listen to our first one, or uh, what, can you uh, talk about him a little bit? I'll be honored. Doug Letourneau, a.k.a. the Frenchman. He was uh, he grew up in, in Smell A, of all places, but he got into the FAA, FAA, Future Farm, FFA, the Future Farms of America, got involved in rodeoing, raising uh, uh, prize, prize cows, and did it all, worked with the Doctari, and put together a TV series. Mm. He did all this and had almost every bone in his body broken as a rodeo rider of bulls and horses and stuff. So he comes into SOG and... Uh, he ran missions, and he's the only guy that I know. His first mission, they were on a target. They were in the ground for two or three days, and they took a break. And when the break was over, he stood up and got shot in the back four times with AKs. And the rounds went through his PRC-25, went through the rucksack, his uniform. Each round broke the skin on his back and ran out of energy, planted him right on his face. He thought he broke his nose. So Doug jumped up thinking, there's a firefight. Well, they had left. They thought he was dead. Yeah. So that night when he took a shower, he took his boot off. There were the four rounds in his boots. Jeez. <laughs> he threw him in the sand because he was so tired. But they got out. And they had that. Uh, and that was the first mission that he was on. And, of course, they got pulled out on strings. Every mission, he ran 13 missions. His dad was a World War II B-17 pilot. On his dad's 13th mission, flying a mission to Swineford, he was the lead squadron of 23 or 24 B-17s out of 1,000 that were going for Swineford for the ball bearing factories mm. on April the 13th, 1944. 22 of the 23 got shot down. Only one survived and got back to base, and they had to use it for scrap. Because the Germans changed the tactics that day. His dad got shot down with 13 missions. 
Doug ran 13 missions, and he had incredible missions. Um, He had another one where uh, they got in. The CIA developed a explosive device that you screwed into the 55-gallon drums. So in Laos, they were, at this time in 69, they would get the 55-gallon drums and have them go down a stream. They would gather at a collection point, and then they would be distributed for fuel to get the trucks down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm. Well, Doug was one of the first teams to go in. The CIA came up with this explosive device, but they wouldn't give it to a team to take in. So Doug's team went in. He was on a, a RT Virginia at that time. Mm-hmm. So Virginia goes in. They're in the jungle for three days. They meet the CIA guy. He gives them the, the charge. They then go down, go to the river, pull a 55-gallon drum out, insert it with a time fuse. They leave, and two days later, when he's getting extracted on strings again, the explosion went off at the fuel dump. And it set a huge shock wave that hit the helicopter and dug as they're getting extracted. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. And then he had, because of his animal experience, he had one of those funny moments in time where he and Lynn Black were in Idaho. They got inserted into a target. And they were, for two, or th- two, two and a half days, the NVA, they thought were following them. Mm. So finally, he got tired of it. Lynn says, get online. Everybody's online. Because you hear them coming. They kept coming this time. Well, instead of NVA, they were orangutans. <laughs> and the orangutans came through the jungles. They had to put the pins back in the grenades. I mean, you can't make that stuff up. You can't. No. And at one point, you know, Lynn Black scratched his arm. So the orangutan scratched his armpit. No kidding. They start doing these hand gestures back and forth. So Lynn Fly flipped him off, and the orangutan flipped him off. Jeez. <laughs> However, he could whatever ditch he had. Man, yeah. Speaking of animals, did uh, what other wildlife encounters did you have in uh, in Vietnam? Well, again, we had our our little people ran point always. So we had pit vipers. We had those two step snakes where yeah. you took two steps and you're dead. Uh, but they always saw those things. And at night, there's at least twice that we heard tigers going around our our ron. Mm-hmm. And on the one mission, in the morning, South found. Their footprints, they're huge. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine. We heard stories about the Marines, and then the, I think it was the 173rd that lost a guy, a soldier or a Marine, to a tiger. The Jeez. tiger came in and took him out, and that was their dinner. Yeah. So, no. <laughs> so that's my exposure. Of course, you always had the spiders and the leeches. Yeah. You know, on Christmas Day, we're in the middle of this slow moving firefight, and I stopped, pulled my pants down because I had leeches that were getting close to Mr. Happy Uh-oh. in the middle of a firefight. <laughs> got to take care. Got to prioritize. Oh, yeah. You know? I, I heard about that for quite a while. <laughs> prioritize and execute, as Jocko would say. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Did you guys ever use uh, as dogs? No. Okay. Never. Too much trouble. Yeah. The training and yeah. who knows what value would be on the ground. Yeah. Because our job was to get out just try to see what we could see. Or we had missions, the point missions, always a wiretap, POW snatch, a blow up enemy fuel lines, bomb damage assessments like you guys had to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, point area recon and um, whatever else they came up with. Yeah. So those were our missions. So dogs, yeah. no. 
Yeah, I was curious if you ever experimented with them because I heard of some people experimenting with different dogs over there uh, for different different things, but I haven't really talked to anybody about it uh, specifically. Um, but uh, but when when the enemy had dogs or you knew they had dogs, you heard them. Were there oh, different yeah. SOPs that you had? Did you guys have any like sure. pepper or cayenne well, or like did you do night, something? Yeah, uh, no, we used black pepper okay. and then powdered mace. Uh, and then the Frenchman, he had found um, some um, powdered mustard gas uh, from World War One. Jeez. Now, how this lands in Vietnam, I don't know, but he got it. That's what they use. Yeah, I think what uh, one of the, <laughs> there's a, they, yeah, they did use, was it the French? Anyway, there is some history of, uh, of mustard gas in Vietnam. That's, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, the, we we hated the dogs. Um, Doug had the perfect solution. I should uh, say I think. Sorry, I should say I think. Yes. I might be conflating things. But we'll, there we go. People will be more than happy to let us know in the comments. Indeed. <laughs> but Doug had the perfect solution for a tracker. The dog was coming up. Doug went back. He had the twenty two standard with a silencer. Dog comes over to Noel. Uh, he popped the dog, put in a toe popper. And so when the handler came up, he mm. hit the toe popper. So he got two with one little mission, but that was Doug. That's the perfect way of handling the tracker dog. Interesting. What uh, what pistol was that? Twenty two standard. So standard. Did it That's have anything it, special for you guys on it? Or was it just other than the silencer? Yeah. No, it worked yeah. at close range. It was perfect. You know, because the mob that was the preferred weapon for for you know an official hit behind the ear with yeah. the twenty two. And it was good enough for the mob, good hey, enough for us. Good enough for Sog. Yeah. <laughs> we carried it a few times, but uh, we never had a chance to get as close as the Frenchman did. Mm. Jeez. And what? And did everybody have the same uh, rifle-type setup, or did anybody ever carry uh, an A-Dub over there, or the uh, stoner, or something like that? Your fellow SEALs yeah. had the stoners. We heard about them. Um, we heard only good things. But... But at the 68, we were all into car 15, which are hard to come by mm. because th we always wanted common weapons. Mm. So that if somebody goes down, yep. then you know how that goes. Yeah. Um, so uh, we heard about it. Then the idea of that would have to go through the whole logistics change, get the weapons, the magazines, the ammo, highly respected. And again, we heard about our counterparts, the SEALs with them that used them down south. And we did have some SEALs early days that ran recon out of Contum, out of FOB2. I forget their names, but John Plaster talked about it in uh. one of his books. And then I met a SEAL who was in Da Nang in 63-64. He was on those fast boats that went north, uh. and he was there during August of 1964. Oh, wow. For the whole campaign up there with the nva okay and um which led to the formal declaration of getting more involvement yeah the gulf of tonkin yeah incident. and they were there now his base was in da nang mm. which turned out to be our base fob4 when the seals left or whoever was he was attached to left yeah that became fob4 which got overrun in uh August 23rd, 68. Okay. 16 Green Berets killed one night. Is that the one? Is that the tanks? 
No, that you know, tanks were Lang Bay. Okay, you know what I'm talking about then, the famous right. tank battle. Well, yeah, they had a, that was during the Tet Offensive. Okay. They launched the Tet, and they we had an A camp at Lang Bay, which was A101, okay. which is up north, close to Quezon. Okay. And um, it was on Highway 9, and the NVA had hit the camp a few times, and um, they had a major attack on it during Tet. They came in with tanks for the first time. Now, again, we had a recon team, Spike Team Oregon, that had warned of the tanks, turned in reports. They went to Saigon and were debriefed, and some of the briefers wouldn't believe them. Yeah, I've never heard about that. Oh, yeah. George Sternberg oh, and Mike geez. Tucker went down and with Oregon. And then he went back, and they took uh, pictures of the tracks. And... Uh, they didn't believe him until they popped out of the jungle. Now, I talked to one of the guys who was a lieutenant then. He was on a mic force that was set up to reinforce the A camp that was there because okay. the A team was 12 men. And um, they said, we heard an intel report from the Air Force that said there might be tanks, but we didn't believe him because it was the Air Force that said they didn't tell us what the intel was. Now, had we known that it was a Green Beret mm. element, a team, because even the people there didn't know about SOG. Yeah. The people in the A camp didn't know we had guys in Laos. Yeah. So they didn't know. Jeez. Talk about no combo. So yeah. our guys report to Saigon. Saigon never warned the A camps. Just a, another fail to communicate, as <laughs> Cool Hand Luke would say. That's right. That's <laughs> right. What we have here. Yeah. Indeed. Oh, my oh. goodness. Yeah. And, uh, did you? How long were you in uh, country on your first deployment, uh, first tour before you? Did you take R and R during that time? Was, was there ever oh, R and R yeah. to Saigon and that sort of thing? Like we had R and R, and you could go anywhere. Uh, five day R and R. So in my case, I went to Hong Kong because by that time I had, I learned how to play poker much better thanks to John Walton, ah. my buddy, and uh, uh, John was a, just a hellacious poker player. Yeah, and. Uh, um, so we learned how to play poker. So by the time I get to Hong Kong, um, bought all my stereo, sent it home, really? state-of-the-art stuff, really? and then went back. So my tour of duty was from April, early, at the end of April 68 to end of April 69. Everybody for the Army was one year. Mm. I think the Marines were 13 months. And it went back. I thought I was going to go to Fort Bragg, but I wound up going to Fort Devens. My commo sent me to a signal company, which I hated every day of it. And then finally went back to the Pentagon, got orders cut for my recon team for get back to CCN. So went back to Vietnam, October 69. Jeez. Got back on the old recon team. So Lynn Black had been the team leader. So I got on the team. He continued. Then we took turns being team leaders. And then the sergeant major goes, there's too much experience here. He yanked Lynn. And I took back to, took the team over until April of uh, 70. Jeez. Then me and the CEO had a disagreement, had words, mm. and uh, I figured this asshole was put here for a reason. I had been in running recon for 19 months at that point mm. and um, came home, got what, out. What was the disagreement? Um, we had a four-man team. I was looking for a different tactic, and before uh, we had moved quickly, we were able to advanced they were used to us moving slower 
So I want to try a four-man team. At that point, they forced us to carry a four-man team, the uh, the PRC-77, with the Scrambler, which weighed just as much as the radio. Was it the same size? Just same, about the same size. Wrap Again, it I'm together? depending on my memory. Yeah. No, was, they were linked by coaxial cable. Uh-huh. And then you had to carry a plunger for the encryption device every day. So that's similar to how it was when I came in, but I mean, wrapped together like, uh, did you uh, like tape them together or something like that? And again, the coaxial cable so it wouldn't they pull apart. Actually, yeah, they they screwed in, yeah, between a radio and so then you had that. And then before you did that, you had a metal punch that had all these little codes on the bottom, and you had to punch in a new one every day. So we had to carry that. You had to carry extra batteries for the encryption device as well as the radio. I'm for, I'm down to four men. Yeah. But he ordered us to do it. I said, well, I'll do it. But if it doesn't work, if we make contact and it doesn't work, I will destroy it. Okay. So we made contact. I destroyed it. It didn't work. We got back. The sergeant major comes out and says, the CO wants to see you. Where's the, where's the encryption device? I said, it didn't work. We had contact. You, he declined to pull us out. We declared a tactical emergency. I could hear his helicopter off in the distance. He came up directly saying no. So we were on the ground for another hour or two, made light contact, and um, we finally got pulled down on strings. And uh, we got back to base. He uh, called me in, explained what happened. Because when it didn't work, I put the thermite grenade on that thing. Mm-hmm. We were in contact. They knew where we were. We put the claymores out. And they said, no, I didn't say that. He says, uh, be out of camp by the morning. I'm going to ruin your SF career. Well, my time in service, my ETS was up in two weeks. Mm. So that night, we had a team party. I gave Hep and Sal 500 bucks. They went down and bought all the booze and the food. And that was it. Next morning, that night, we had our party. So for me, that was the most painful night because we had the party. Everybody passed out one by one. Mm. And then Hep was the last one. Hep was there. Ma, you need anything else? So no, Hep. He literally passed out <laughs> outside the hooch. So I picked up Hep. I dusted him off, took him in, put him in bed. I just stood there looking at the team. And it goes like, this is it. How This is how it ends. To go home. What's going to happen for these guys that kept me alive all these months? So, uh, the morning, first light, went back to uh, fifth group headquarters, pulled guard duty for two weeks, and went mm-hmm. home. Got out April 25th, 1970. Okay. And it ended right there. Were the COs then, were they majors? No, it was a colonel. It was a colonel. Lieutenant colonel or colonel. Yeah. This was a, a ring knocker from West Point, yeah. and he was a tanker. And he was there getting his medals. Uh-huh. He was later dishonorably discharged from the military because he had forged documents in his campaign to get medals to build up his career. No way. Yeah, he put himself in for a medal for my mission where he refused to pull me out. Oh. He wasn't even over the AO. I could hear his helicopter. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, well, there's bound to be a few. Gosh. Yeah, so I figured the Lord put him there to get my dumb ass home. Yeah. Went back to the States. Okay. Went back to school. Like I said, I had flunked out of college, so I had to make up the courses. Went back, got involved with journalism there for a while. Yeah. 
and then I went back to work. Jeez. Did you keep in touch with the, how did you, did you keep in touch with uh, people that let you know how the, uh, the, the indige that you worked with were, oh. were doing or how did you, how did you back then? I mean, you're not, obviously you're not texting. There's no email, you know, there, there's only a few, no letters, phone calls. Yeah. Anything. Lynn and I stayed in touch. Doug and I stayed in touch for, for a few years. And then we both moved. When I came to California, I lost Doug, lost comma with Doug, and we didn't reconnect until around 1990. Mm. And uh, um, Lynn Black, Elton Bargewell, we stayed in touch. Mm. But again, it would be letters or a phone call occasionally, mm-hmm. minimal. Because Spider Parks finally reconnected with Spider, and Spider had stayed in to be a command sergeant major 30 plus years. Wow. Well, Highly respected. Went down. He was. He spoke seven languages. Jeez. He went to his combo school to learn how to speak Korean. So he was a sergeant major in Korea, then in South and Central America, down there with the 7th Special Forces Group when they were operating against the uh, all the communists, the different situations down there. Wow. Oh, yeah. Just amazing. How many guys have you reconnected with since you uh, started writing the books and the podcast and going on Jocko and becoming a, uh, a public well, figure, as they well, say? The public figure part was before that we had um, Soldier of Fortune, but nobody knew who I was. And then we had the Special Operations Association, which was formed yeah. by SOG veterans. And um, so we have an annual reunion. And so later this month we'll, be, we'll have our, I think it's our 47th or 48th reunion. Wow. In Vegas, and uh, so we'll be gathering there. So that started the reconnection with some people that I yeah. served with, and then of course, uh, when when Jocko did the first podcast with Jocko, which was um, June of 2019. Mm-hmm. So Jocko's podcast number one eight zero was the first one. I think I'm right after you, somewhere in there. Yeah, you are. Yeah. That's where I first yeah. learned about your story. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> and then we connected after that. So we oh, did. So like, holy shit! <laughs> Amazing. Absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. What are those? Uh, what are some of the memories from going to uh, uh, the Special Operations Association Vegas convention reunion? Um, do you meet people that uh, you didn't know, but you'd only heard on a radio uh, or like what, what sort of connections did you make there with people that or reconnections? That well, the you, reconnects for us were anybody from FOB one. Cause during our time, FOB three was in Quezon and they're mm. still running missions across the fence out of Quezon when during the, the, the siege. And they also did some area patrols and, and uh, on the ground, we have a story of one of our teams going out to go fish. Mm. So the brew would go down when they fished, they would just throw a hand grenade into a pond, get some fish, take them back, and cook them up. Uh, so after one of these missions, Pat Watkins went out, did this, came back. A day later, the Marines went out and got hammered. They ran into an ambush, and they captured an NVA officer that directed the ambush somehow. I'm not sure how that's happened. They caught Pat Watkins in to the S3 shop, or S2, wherever it was at Quezon. And he met the guy that ambushed the Marines. He was going to ambush his team, but said no. And he said, why would I attack mercenaries? I want to kill as many Americans as I could. Mm. And, so they, and so Pat literally walked through the ambush. When they saw it was a SOG team, 
with just indigenous people and one or two green berets. Mm. The next day they hit the Marine Corps and had heavy casualties. Jeez. Oh, horrible. Jeez. Yeah. Man. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility. Building rifles is no different. Started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago, BCM, Bravo Company MFG, designs, engineers, and manufactures life-saving tools built to a professional standard. BCM builds professional-grade AR rifles and offers a huge and expanding line of upgraded accessories for the rifle, including buttstocks, pistol grips, optic mounts, handguards, vertical grips, and a lot more. BCM is partnered with veteran American Special Operations Forces instructors to ensure our customers have access to proven training to employ critical hard skills under stress. Every BCM product is a collaboration between our design, engineering team, and combat veteran end users. BCM components improve handling and reliability in all scenarios, addressing shortcomings discovered in real-world conditions with legacy systems. We assume that when a rifle leaves our shop, it could be used in a life-or-death situation. Each component is hand-assembled and tested by Americans in Heartland, Wisconsin. Bravo Company MFG is an employee-owned company. Visit us on the web at bravocompanymfg.com and on Instagram at bravocompanyusa. All right. Uh, did you carry a pistol on every op, or did you have access to a pistol? Was it a choice? What did you guys use? Choice. Yeah. Because we had the sawed-off M79. Just wanted more firepower. So um, uh, that was the preferred weapon. So we always carried um, 10 to 12 rounds for the M79, sawed off. And then because the, the round, when we're, on, when, we're on, when we're marching or moving, I always had, like, the flechettes in it. <clears throat> I was going to ask about that. So, yeah, so that if we, in between magazine changes, if something happened, you needed it, just come out with the flechettes. Wow. And then we carried HE. And we always had one CS and then one one smoke. Okay. Just for good luck. Hey. Yeah. And then uh, smoke grenades. Then for the car 15, 600 plus rounds for it. Jeez. And then I always carried the radio because yeah. I wanted to do the air coverage in myself, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, so a couple times we took the, uh, not me, but like Lynn or Bubba Shore, John Shore, Carried the twenty two with a silencer. Okay. So if we needed it for a POW or for a dog. Mm. But yeah. the opportunity didn't come. Yeah. Did you get what uh what pistols did you have uh, access to? What what were your choices? Oh, well then the Browning. Yeah. Because it had more rounds. In fact, at one point Lynn and I talked about putting aside the car fifteen for the Browning for weight. Because huh. you figure if you have the Browning, that way you can carry what, fifteen or sixteen rounds? Uh, for the nine millimeter anyways yeah. that was we thought have that but then something about the firefight if they're on full automatic with the ak yeah so we yeah we talked you wisely chose not yeah, to yeah. do that yeah, yeah. oh <laughs> man uh, so we had a choice of anything from the four, of course yeah. the old faithful the 1911 yeah <clears throat> and the browning the browning high power and uh anything else we had experimental weapons that came through all the time. Mm. We had the uh, the rocket, and we had the pump M seventy nine, and uh, we actually carried that. Not me, but another team member, Henry Henry King, took it on one mission with a us. pump M seventy nine. Yeah, interesting experimental, huh. but it carried three. I think it, I think it carried four rounds. Like it, it was like a big shotgun. Yeah, but it had 
man, that's firepower. You could fire off four rounds before they before they landed. Yeah. And then have him, me, and the other American, and then our grenadier would fire off. You figure seven HEs could come in on you at once. Jeez. But it was heavy. Yeah. And in the jungle, just not worth it. Yeah. In the end, we just wanted to keep our flexibility, and every American on the team would carry the salt off. Yeah. And then a lot of times we'd take our M79 guy with us. He could just put that thing mm. up in that ass at 500 yards. Jeez. He was good. Man. And you've, you've mentioned a Hatchet Force, Mike Force. Uh, hatch- well, the Mike Force was separate. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you the difference, but people sure. hear those different uh, terms. What's a. Uh, well, the Mike. Uh, Jack Tobin, who was a, we've lost Jack recently, but he was in the mic force. Mm. The way he described it, the SOG guys would go out to be quiet, stoop and poop. They'd get into a firefight and raise hell. The mic force would go out looking at trouble. They mm. wanted to kick the NVA's ass. And so they were designed as our quick reaction force. In the 60s, early 60s, when the A-camps were beginning to get set up, they needed a quick reaction force. So when the NVA would hit them, Okay. They would, they would, and they were under siege. The Mike Force would come in and believe them, okay. and, they, and they came in. Would they were good? Man. How about Hatchet Force? What? Uh... Well, within within Sog, we had recon teams that would be uh, two or three Americans. A few of our guys would be the American just with the Indiz, like uh, Captain Gary Robb, mm-hmm. uh, Pat Eddington. They just were by themselves with their Indiz. Okay. Um, then we had, I like just two, myself or another American. So yeah. if either of us got hit, <clears throat> we could get each other out. Mm-hmm. Car little people are so good. Our South Vietnamese are just mm. fearless. They're better in the jungle than we were. And uh, they're just great people. So um, that's a recon team. It could be, some guys like to have eight man. Dick Thompson sometimes ran bigger teams, even mm. a 10 man team. I prefer to six. Occasionally, we did the eight a couple of times. So that's recon. Hatchet force would be a platoon size operation. Mm. Then the classic would be Operation Tailwind, which went in outside west of our AO. The CIA was under under siege with a major operation on uh, the southern plains, plains of Jars, because the uh, Sinuk had left Cambodia. North Vietnamese were heading south in mass to really try to take over Cambodia. CIA was engaging them on the plane of jars. They said, send in a SOG hatchet force to, to distract the NBA. Mm. So uh, September 14th, no, so, uh, anyway, September 1970, 132 went in. There was a, or 136. There was 120 indigenous troops and 16 Green Berets that went in. And they took them in with the CH-53 Deltas because the flight was so long. Um, they had to, uh, the regular U.S. couldn't get in. So as they flew in, got inserted, the first day they were on the ground, they hit an enemy cachet. Mm. And it was, it was one of the more successful missions. And during that mission, um, they're in the NVA base camp. And the telephone rang. And the commander, Captain Gene McCarley, picked up the phone. Hello, Fifth Special Forces Group, may I help you? 
No way. To this day, Ho Chi Minh is trying to figure out who the hell this guy was. <laughs> so they hit the they hit that cachet. The next night, the uh, command post got hit with an RPG. Hmm. The medic was Mike Rose, who had serious wounds to his feet, his hands. To this day, he still has a, uh, issues with his hands from hmm. those injuries. RPG came in, passed all the Americans, exploded, and the shrapnel came back and hit Gene McCarley, the team leader, some of the Americans, and severely wounded a couple of little people. And so they had to carry them. For the time they were on the ground, they were on the ground for a total of four days. Yeah. And uh, at the end of that mission, they had, uh, they issued 32 Purple Hearts to the 16 Green Berets alone. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Just an incredible mission. So that's a hatchet force. Did you have any interaction or touch points with uh, the Phoenix? No. We had a couple. We heard about it, and we had guys that came into SOG that had been in Phoenix and it was just the most effective program there was in country mm-hmm. against the Viet Cong infrastructure. It was really well done. And, of course, it got corrupted, and then the media got a hold of it and distorted it. But that was the way, because it was designed to get into um, the local villages and, as always, work with the local people, find out who the Viet Cong infrastructure was, because sooner or later you found out and then they began to disappear. Sometimes you'd bring them in and try to convert them. And uh, we interviewed uh, for one of our sawcasts, John Mullins, who was an officer that worked with uh, mm. worked with the, the Phoenix Project and with PRU, which was the Provincial Revolutionary Unit. Mm-hmm. And they worked with the local people also. Okay. And sometimes they would capture people, bring them back and... The first thing they would do after they interrogated him, generally without any harassment, say, look, we're going to go to Saigon. You've been in a communist theater learning about what they tell you. Let me just show you what what we're really like. Show mm-hmm. them what Saigon was like. And they go like, that would be the, one of the biggest recruitment tools to see how they lived, how we, what, what it was like to not be under the communist thumb. Yeah. And they did some major recruiting. So then they would turn around and come back and they'd go up the chain. And they really hurt the Viet Cong infrastructure, took it out. And then it got distorted. And then uh, the media got involved and they finally shut it down. Did, did you ever hear about anything happening to the people that you'd worked with after we left Vietnam after April 75, did you get stories through the, oh. the grapevine of what happened to those who helped us? Uh, minimal. Yeah. Um, we had several of the Vietnamese King Bee pilots. Mm-hmm. For example, Captain Tin, who pulled us out of Echo 4, the 48 rounds in this helicopter with bullet holes from different sizes of ordnance. Um, he was the same King Bee pilot to save John Walton, who was the son of Sam Walton from oh, Walmart yeah. fame. John was an outstanding medic, just a, an amazing poker player. August 3rd, his six-man team got overrun <clears throat> three times. On the third time, the team leader called it uh, an A-1 gun run on his team. It killed the Vietnamese. The 20 Mike Mike rounds, two 20 Mike Mike rounds hit Tom Cunningham. Tom came on the team earlier in the week. Mm. I think this was near the weekend, the Saturday or Sunday. And a 20 mic mic round hit his radio. The shrapnel wounded the team leader. 
second round, took his leg off, and Tom could see himself. He had an out-of-body experience. He saw himself flying through the air with his leg dangling by Sinu. And when he landed, he didn't know if he was dead or not. He called his name out. He returned to the body. John got him out, got the team leader out. The indigenous who was killed, they had to leave behind. And um, he got them all out, got them back, got them back to the uh, medevac facility. And when John came in, they took Tom Cunningham in, and he had one of his team members who had been wounded, the South Vietnamese, was wounded four times. And um, when they went in, they said, no, no, we don't do in ditch. And John pulled his car 15 up, said, you will treat him now. Mm. Took him in. <laughs> so there was a little bit of a disturbance with John's attitude to treat his little guy, right? Uh, the doctor was so shaken that they couldn't do an IV. Mm. So John had to do the cut down and put it mm. in and uh, stood there while he took care of his little guy before he came back to base. Yeah. So that's the kind of medic John was. So Captain Tin saved John, saved our team. Uh, he was in a re-education camp for 13 and a half years. 13 and a half years. Yeah. He finally came back to America. They got a job now going from South Vietnam, re-education camps, to a job in Fargo, North Dakota working in a factory. Oh, wow. Think about that dichotomy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, my. And he was, he had ice in his veins. He yeah. could fly that King B. And we had others. Uh, Captain On was in for a few years. Mm -hmm. Captain Tuong, who personally pulled out our team several times mm -hmm. under heavy fire on Christmas Day, he saved our team. And, uh, so he was in for five and a half years. Mm. And Captain Tin, he was in during that period of time. All of his teeth had gotten really bad. Mm. He came back, had to get medical work done. But um, he, we were able to reconnect him with John Walton. Mm. So in 2003, at SOAR, our Special mm. Operations Association reunion, mm -hmm. John flew his jet to Fargo, picked up Captain Tin, well, then Colonel Tin, mm. his wife and his son, flew him to the reunion, Paid for everything. We had dinner that night at one of the hoity-toity hotels there. It was just fabulous. And then John turned to his son and said, remember this man, he saved my life. Wow. Yeah. Because John had a son, Luke, who was just a, just a great kid. Wow. And uh, so he flew him home and uh, took care of him. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, just a great story. Jeez. That's the way John was. And John yeah. Walton was the same the John Walton I met in 68, the fearless Green Beret medic, the same guy. Sadly, we lost him in an experimental airplane crash in uh, 2005. Oh, Brutal. But uh, good man. Yeah. So Captain Tin and these others. Uh, from the recon team, the only person I know about was Hep, my interpreter, on April 30th, 75, the day that Saigon fell. Mm -hmm. Hep's father was able to get passes to the... <clears throat> into one of the airports in Saigon, there was a C-130. The tailgate was half up, was loaded with people. Hep came out with his wife, and he the, the C-130 was starting to move. He's chasing the C-130. He threw his kid up to somebody who caught the kid, helped his wife get in. He fell down. He got back up, ran alongside of the C-130, and a hand grabbed down, 
and pulled him into the C-130. So I didn't see Hep again until uh, the History Channel did a thing called Suicide Missions. Mm. <clears throat> so they interviewed me and a couple others, a story on SOG. It was one of the first uh, media productions that was serious on SOG. Mm. And uh, during it, I showed the picture from uh, across the fence, that team picture. And Hep's nephew saw the picture, called the History Channel. They called me. I called the nephew who lived in Carlsbad 10 miles from my house in wow. Oceanside. We got together. He gave me Hep's phone number. And then Hep came out for a wedding a couple of months later. I surprised him at the airport. Okay. And then we stayed in touch until we lost Hep, sadly, five years ago. But he's the only one I knew about. He told me about Sal. Sal went back to Saigon, and he got a job just running those personal little hand, you know, those carts that you mm -hmm. have. I forget what they call them. Yeah. But it's like a one cart, right. one or two people be in there, or three people. Like rickshaw. Rickshaw, thank yeah. you. And he survived, dodged the NVA. Jeez. And uh, survived, and we lost Sal about eight years ago. Wow. And Sal was just a farmer. All he wanted to do was get his wife, go back to the farm. Okay. And he was he ran recon for over five years. Then Hep, he had, um, in 1970, he went up to headquarters. He was such a good interpreter. He got a pay raise. And I said, sure, <laughs> you've been on Idaho for all these years. Get the yeah. job, get the promotion. And we had somebody else, another interpreter came on. And he was training. We always cross-trained a couple of our uh, South Vietnamese that were uh, who were really smart with language. Mm. They were learning English. And we cross-trained them. So that if I went down, mm. if the Americans went down, they could still go on the radio talk, direct airstrikes, yeah. and gave medical training and things like that. Right. So, you know, always, you know how it is with the cross training. Yeah. That's what wow. we did with the team. So that's the only people I knew about. Yeah. What did, uh, you, where were you in April of uh, 1975? And what did you think if you were, were watching news? At well, the time? at that point I was working at the Trenton Times newspaper in Trenton, New Jersey, mm. had been on the paper four months. And when the teletype came, I went to the restroom. I just sat there. It's like, what happened to my people, my little people? Mm. Never knew until the, many years later. I had a couple letters um, from other guys. I saw Eldon Barswell sent mm. a letter. Um, but this was all before 79, uh, 75. And then um, no, no commo until I heard from Hep. What did you think of uh, strategically? as far as uh, our involvement overall, not just uh, SOG and special operations and uh, the Indige you worked with and the, the people that you knew that you had lost or returned, still dealing with the mental and, and physical, emotional trauma of the battlefield, but overall as a, as a nation, having seen uh, the turmoil of the, uh, the, the late 60s, early 70s, and then to, to see everything that, we, that, that was sacrificed for, um, how it ended up. What, what were your thoughts as far as that goes? Well, it's painful yeah. to see it go down. I mean, particularly when you think about World War II, how we executed a war you wanted to win without the politics. I mean, we uh, were precluded from going to North Vietnam, precluded to go into Laos with force. Had they done that, the North Vietnamese feared that we would cut up the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm. Had we cut it off, mined a harbor in Haiphong, and cut off the Cambodian. Could they we came down, 
they had the Cambodian trail, the Sinook trail that came in, which we knew little about, but we knew what was going on. Mm. They were bringing supplies in that way in mm-hmm. the South Vietnam. Had we just cut them all off, then fought the war the way they fought World War II. And again, my uh, belief in it was through my little people. I mean, I had three men on the team, uh, Doti Kwong, Phuc, Tuan, mm. who were all born in North Vietnam. In 1954, after the fall of Dien Bien Phu, when the French were officially defeated by the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, um, they left, and there was a period of time when... People in the north could come south, and anybody in the south who wanted to go north could. Mm. Well, nobody went north, but there were thousands, maybe as many as 100,000 people that came south. Mm. Why well, had three of them on my team. Wow. <clears throat> they knew, and they preferred, they knew their government was corrupt in South Vietnam, but they preferred to live under a corrupt government that they knew mm. and they could live with. They could still work their fields. They could still be entrepreneurs. But, you know, you had parameters as opposed to living under the thumb of communism. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always felt that our mission was justified there. Some might argue that point. Had we fought the war a different way, fought it to win, mm-hmm. <clears throat> as opposed to all the political bullshit the State Department put on us. I mean, there's probably more communists in the State Department then and today than there <laughs> are in Hanoi and, and Moscow, yeah. the way these people act. Yeah. Oh. And where were you? Were you still in when the Pentagon Papers came out? No, I was out by then. The Pentagon, of course, you know, by this time I'm getting involved in journalism. Yeah. I've been in ninth grade. I was involved with a school newspaper. Okay. In high school, I didn't get involved in the paper. It was just too busy um, with high school stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but when I came back uh, to college, because I flunked out, so I made some classes up. That was my new mission, is to make up the classes, get a degree, mm-hmm. and then go on. Well, I got involved in the school, school newspaper. We also put together uh, the POW MIA Concern Center mm. that we had on campus. You had a thing called VIVA, the Voices in Vital America, mm. that came out with the first icon for the POW MIA icon. Oh, wow. And that's now they, they've used that with the National League of POW MIA families that's still today fighting our government, and the Vietnamese to try to recover as many of our people as we can to repatriate them. Um, so we had that on campus. So we got very involved. We sold the, remember the POW bracelets? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure, we had yeah. sold thousands of those. Had bumper stickers. We tried to get local attention. We had a, a POW from Trenton, New Jersey. He was an Air Force officer. And um, we rallied around his family. And then when he came home, we had a big party with him, said, welcome home. And uh, so that was the kind of things we did on campus, mm-hmm. as well as getting involved, writing stories and stuff. And then from there, I went to the Trenton Times in uh, January of 75, and I was there when Saigon mm-hmm. fell. Yeah. And when the, the teletype came across, it's just, like, painful, just horrible. Yeah. Like, what, the Afghans? Yeah, that's, that's what I was, yeah, that's what I Absolutely. was. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of similarities. A lot of Painful similarities. Similar. Yeah. I identify with that yeah. painfully so when it happened. Yeah, heartbreaking. The well, image. here's the other difference, though. We had people like the Pineapple Express. Mm-hmm. See, in our day, we didn't have all the social media, right. get on the phone. And uh, my my connection 
when I do our SOG camp, my first technician, my primary technician, is still in Fifth Special Forces Group today. Oh wow! Can't identify him because he's in the, he's in the Fourth Battalion doing cyber stuff. He's great, and he helped over two hundred people get back from Afghanistan. Jeez. The stuff, the dramas he went. Through, I'm trying to get him to talk about his story. In fact, I made to come back and do an independent sidecast just on him. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> For Jeez. something, that I'm sure Jocko will sign off on that. <laughs> yeah, because you guys are involved with the, the sidecast. Well, and- thanks to Jocko. Um, now, I did a series of sidecasts, I mean, podcasts with Jocko. Mm-hmm. The first one was, again, four years ago in June. We got to the seventh and eighth one, Seventh one was with Cowboy, who was with Lynn Black on the October 5th mission in 68. Mm. The eighth one was Captain Ahn, who was a King Bee pilot, mm. who lost both hands after his King Bee crash. He had Jeez. He inserted a team, and as they're leaving, the King Bee got shot up, and a fire exploded in the passenger compartment, and then it came up to the pilots as they sat up there. So he could have landed and escaped without wounds, mm-hmm. serious wounds or injuries, yep. but he would have been captured by the NVA. Jeez. He chose to fly over a mountain, and then he had an emergency landing in while the flames are burning in the cockpit. When he landed, he crash-landed. He couldn't open a window because the skin and everything came off oh. his hands. He had to use his elbow Jeez. to open the window to get out. Well, eventually he had to cut off both hands. And he's lived since. He's still alive today in San Jose with two hooks. Smokes a pack of cigarettes a day. Wow. <laughs> but just an amazing pilot. Yeah. Gosh. So, yeah. That's incredible. Jeez. So, yeah, Pentagon Papers here. So you're... And so when the Pentagon Papers came yeah, out... You're not, now, you're, you haven't been out for too long. When no. This... But I'm Jay, so I'm, I, this part of my... You talk about the great dichotomy in my mind. Yeah. As a reporter... Do it. We got to find out what really happened. Yeah. As the secret operator, what are you kidding me? What the <laughs> WTF? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. But the Pentagon Papers was was it had to be done. Yeah. I mean, it, it, incredible to this to this day. I referenced it in my last uh, in my last novel. I mean, it's you and, did. And now we have the uh, the Afghanistan Papers, which is once talking about journalism again. Oh. We have the Washington Post doing two Freedom of Information Act request lawsuits in order to get it to get access to these interviews of people coming back from Afghanistan who are going in front of Congress and saying one thing, and in these classified interviews, they're saying about one eighty out. Uh, from what they're saying to Congress and the American people and by default their troops. There's some um, other sawcasts. I mean not sawcast, there's been other podcasts where people on the ground doing that. I mean, we could talk more about that later, but that's just oh yeah, yeah. lies, lies. Political expediency yeah. and look at look at the the wrong, the total wrong, the pain and suffering that's resulted from that. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention the impact on our vets. Yep. Yep. And uh and you're so now you're all in on the journalism front at this point. And here's this. I have this. No, no. Here. This is uh, Drugs in the 80s, a San Diego Union special report. Um, Indeed. Yeah. So what, uh, when did you make the move out to, to San Diego and start working out there? Um, one of my editors moved to San Diego, got a job at the San Diego Union, and uh, they had an opening in the law enforcement mm. reporter. And the San Diego Union was in the middle of expanding its coverage. Okay. Um, 
So I came in as a law enforcement reporter, which included the border, border patrol, yeah. and drugs. At that time, methamphetamine was very big, and San Diego County had had uh, over a period of a, a little over a year, they had a DEA working with the Narcotics Task Force, which was a local task force mm-hmm. that the DEA funded with every police department in yeah. San Diego County. So had people coming through. It had the feds, locals, county, sheriffs, um, and they really did good work. And uh, they were coming up against meth labs all over. They took down 50 meth labs in San Diego County. Mm-hmm. And the district attorney for that package there yep. said that San Diego, 1985, 85. was the meth capital of the country. Wow. Because it has so much meth. At that point, you could go into a chemical store, buy all the ingredients, uh, and cook methamphetamine geez. and yeah. not get arrested. Now, if you made the meth and you got caught with the meth, you could go to jail. But a couple of these unethical companies would sell all the chemicals. And, we, and that's uh, one of my stories in there. Okay. I went in and bought all the chemicals just to show, paid for it with San Diego Union money, yeah. just to show how easy it was. And eventually, they had a... They cut back on that and had a crackdown on the law for the ingredients. And, they, and then years later, after that package, we did stories about uh, the DEA set up a, a sting operation where they were selling the chemicals and they would track the chemicals mm. after they were sold. And they had a couple that came in whose sixth grader cooked meth. And the parents bragged about their boy cooking meth better than anybody they knew. Wow. Yeah. Like a Breaking Bad situation. Oh, absolutely. And then in this series here, we interviewed, I interviewed two parents, two mothers, who had 12-year-old girls who traded their bodies for meth. Oh, geez. This is 1985. Yeah. And, of course, we talked about fentanyl, which is now back in the headlines here in a deadlier form. Yeah, so you're talking about it right here. You're talking about it here. So this is, uh, yeah, published as a six-part series that ran from November 17 to November 22, 1985. Staff writer Jay Strykermeyer worked on the investigation for 10 months in the process, talking to hundreds of experts from law enforcement and medical officials to users and dealers. That's a pretty big deal. It was. Yeah. And uh, it was really ugly. I mean, and then 85, don't forget, February of 85 was the year that DEH and Kiki Camarena was murdered in yeah. Mexico. And years later, we didn't use it in this part of the series, but we did stories about the torture of him. And there were tapes. They tape recorded his torture. Jeez. And they documented how there were federales, state police, and attorneys from the prosecutor's office mm. who were present during those tortures, along with the drug people who were trying to, they tortured him to find out who his sources were because they wanted to go kill him. Wow. Yeah. I remember there was, I remember, I mean, that was big, huge news Absolutely. when that happened. I remember I was 12, 11, 12. <laughs> and I, I still remember because I was still, I was focused on, on all these things going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. And uh, they did, I think a, uh, either the, the next year, it, was, it wasn't very long afterward, that uh, one of the major networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, one of them, did a, uh, did a, did a show about it. There was a, uh, either a miniseries, a two-parter, they did something, movie of the week, something like that right. about it. And I remember watching it as a, as a kid. But, uh, and the drug geez. war has been deadly, so that's what we went after that time. And uh, 
all the different ramifications from it, yeah. as well as treatment centers that were just getting overrun. What did you uh, What did you do from this? I mean, this is a pretty big deal. Doing this uh, this story right here. Did you, how long did you stay working at the Union Tribune or I was, then the it Union? Was, it was a San Diego Union. They merged with the Evening Paper, which was mm. the San Diego Tribune. Okay, I was there until '93. Okay, and they merged the papers. I was laid off. Went to work at a local paper up in North County in Oceanside. Mm. It, was, it was called the Blade Citizen. Okay. And then that became the North County Times. And uh, I was there for 15 years from, um, um, I went up to 94 and uh, actually 93. Got to start there working in October 93. Met my present wife in December 15th of 94, 93. And, uh, we came together as a family, and I worked oh. there for 15 years until 2008. And then after that, I went to work at a couple nonprofits. First, uh, Interfaith Community Services, where we had a whole veterans program set up. Oh. And I was there doing uh, outreach, and we helped veterans get affordable housing. And they had a program where they had 144 beds that veterans could come in. Mm. And then you had to be clean. If you came, if you had a drug problem, alcohol, you had to work through it and then mm-hmm. you could come into the program okay. and then after that i went to the, um a program up in orange county we helped veterans get affordable housing there oh, wow. and the uh the gentleman who was the main driving force behind it was a green beret richard simonian who just celebrated his 91st birthday wow and they helped veterans and they just done uh two of their villages that they have they have all afghanistan's Afghanistanis, and they have a uh, uh, an Afghanistan veteran who worked with Green Berets. Mm. He had citations and awards and decorations from several different special forces groups mm. who all recommended him. And so Richard hired him, and he's uh, he does all the vetting for the Afghan people to come in to go to the villages. Okay, I mean, yeah, they're communities. They're they're, they're uh, mobile home parks. Okay manufactured homes. Okay. And so they're out in the desert of California, putting them together out there, oh, wow. working with them. And then the, the interpreter, he was an interpreter with SF. Yeah. And uh, he had a, needed a new prosthesis. They put together a fundraiser, raised $40,000, gave wow. him a new prosthesis. Jeez. And they're up and running. So I worked with them until we moved to Tennessee in uh, 2020. Okay. My wife and I came out in uh, 2020, had they closed that chapter of our life? We stay in stay in touch with them. Yeah. Wow. Who uh, who designed the uh, Mac V Sog logo? It was there when I got there. Yeah. It's a good question. So I don't know. I wish I knew. Yeah. But they did a hell of a job with it. It was a classic. Yeah. Because oh, we it knew it. we had them on our cigarette lighters. And yeah, yeah. Else, I put course. that in the book last time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, right. that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I was curious who put that together. Like one guy, or if it morphed over time, or well, yeah. there's been a lot of people that come after it since then. But it's been out in the public so long. Mm. I mean, it was commonplace within Sog yeah. when I got there in '68. So who knows? It may have come through Sisa, which was our. Uh, they were our suppliers in Okinawa. Yeah. They gave us all the weapons, the rations, food, yeah. uniforms. They yeah. were our, our private supply line for us and, and the agency sometimes. Yeah. be interesting to find out how that came about. Like, did someone say, hey, uh, 
Make, make us a sit. We need a patch. We need a flag. We need a symbol. We need something. Yeah. Uh, hey, who, who here has some artistic capability? You, you're, you voluntold, uh, figure this out or however that uh, came about, <laughs> you know, cause it's such an iconic symbol. It'd be it interesting is. to, to find out exactly, you know, who first put pen to paper on, on that thing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so cool. And, uh, and what, have you been to the, what year did the Vietnam veterans Memorial? When was that completed? When was that? 82, 83. Somewhere in there. Right before, um, before I moved to California, I drove down with my daughter, who was then two. Okay. We drove down to Volkswagen from Trenton, went down and saw it on our own, mm-hmm. quietly, mm-hmm. without any part of the festivities or anything, mm-hmm. just to see it. And it's just, every time you look at it, it's just amazing. Yeah. Were you following the how it was, how it came about, how it was made, how it was oh, designed, sure. the whole, you were, so you were following that stuff? Yeah. Even though Trenton's 180 miles away yeah. from D.C., we followed it. Absolutely. And then we moved to uh, San Diego County, um, just watched, you know, the following generations of it and the good that came out of it, the healing and all the things that followed up. I mean, they've got storage rooms now filled with mementos that have been left by the vets and their families. And of course, it took a while, but they even even acknowledged the MIAs too. Took a while to get that in. I don't know the whole history of it, but the yeah. National League of POWMIA okay. families worked hard to get that acknowledgement in there. Yeah. Have Absolutely. you been back? Have you been back multiple times? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, we had a meeting. Um, we're, we're in the middle of trying to get the a uh, Congressional Gold Medal, mm. which is the highest civilian award for SOG. Mm. So we were down lobbying Congress uh, earlier this year. We were going through the halls oh, wow. and uh, met Morgan Luttrell. Okay. A congressman. Yeah. From Texas. Yeah, met we're getting Morgan. a lot, of, uh, a lot uh, of veterans back into Congress now. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we were down there for that. And, of course, from there, we take a quick jag over yeah. to check the wallet whenever we're in town. Yeah. Always have to go by and salute. And how, how old were you when, uh, when JFK was assassinated? I was uh, in high school. Okay. We were in uh, one of my classes. We had a choir, official choir class, because mm-hmm. I was in the choir. And uh, somebody came down, told the choir director what it was, what had happened. So I was a junior in high school. I was 17. Mm-hmm. And uh, he stopped it, and he started crying. Yeah. Right there at the stand. It's like, mm-hmm. we never saw. He was a Navy vet. Oh, wow. And uh, to see our director break down like mm-hmm. that, and we all stopped and we were like, what the hell happened? So he finally got a hold of himself. He said, told us what happened. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. It was the 22nd, 63. Yeah. Do you look back on that as a pivotal, I mean, so much changed after after oh. that and so much, and a lot of those changes led to directly to what you were doing in, in Vietnam. Do you sure. look back on that Even event? Even there, again, it was like a lack of communication. Kennedy wanted to keep the war down to spec ops. That's why he liked special forces. That's why he liked the SEALs Mm -hmm. because the SEALs were in country doing their thing. And um, he wanted at that level to work with the local people to work if they really wanted to fight communists and help them to do so. Mm -hmm. And that's what the progress, but they never told, he never told Johnson that. Had he would Johnson had followed, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But then, um, then the escalation started from there. Yeah. And uh, so who knows? The assassination is just too tragic. Yeah. 
have you looked into do you have any any thoughts on on that <laughs> well now the latest things with people with this expert i mean they had this miracle bullet theory it had to be utter complete bullshit you know yeah. that better than anybody you're a sniper yeah um so it was bullshit but i never had the time to research it we we're just busy in our world you yeah. know and then once I met my sweetheart, she had two boys, had two girls. Mm. We went for the tiebreaker, <laughs> and the tiebreaker is now 26, and she gave us our bestest with our first grandson. Uh, so that's the way that goes. So, yeah, would have liked to have had a little more time to, to work on that. But now some of these books that are coming out, oh, my God. I mean, so, I mean, yeah, there's there's, there's so much that's uh, – there's still a lot of questions around <laughs> a lot of these things. Um, but I love what you're doing, keeping this history alive, capturing these lessons, doing the SOG cast. And, um, and uh, were you planning on doing that anyway, or were you was, – uh, was Jocko encouraging? That's Jocko, mm-hmm. all Jocko. Uh, like I said, uh, we got off track, but the last two episodes, mm-hmm. Jocko and I were talking, well, I said, I got – you should interview this guy. Yeah. Dick Thompson would be a great interview, a couple other people, mm-hmm. and um, – he goes, you know, let's do a thing called SOGCast. I go, that's a great idea. You'll just focus on SOG. He goes, yeah, we'll focus on SOG. So I figured this is Jocko or Echo. One of his guys would do the interviews, you know. So at the end of the eighth interview with me, yeah. which was uh, Jocko Podcast number 259 with Captain On, um, we chatted. The cameras are off. He goes, let's do the SOGCast. He says, um, We'll interview these guys. Give me a list of people. And says, let me know. Mm. says, but you're going to do the interview. They go, me? <laughs> I said, well, Jock, you know, with your with your style, your money, well, I'll be glad to do it. He goes, yeah, I'll bankroll. And he has a man of his word. So um, we start doing them. We fly people out to my house in Tennessee. I have a little studio set up. Not quite as elaborate as this, uh, yeah. but close to the same kind of mics and everything. Yeah. But do the interviews. He's paid for everything. Amazing. Amazing dedication. He's done more for SOG history than the Army or Special Forces, for that matter. Oh, wow. But these interviews. So we've interviewed a lot of our vets. Uh, we just re- interviewed a Sky Raider pilot who will become us soon, a King Bee pilot. Amazing. And the support elements, our helicopter guys, yeah. as well as the guys on the ground. And those are Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Right. So... Uh, they first come up, we have a total of 45 in the can. They've posted up to 38. Number 30 was posted a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And um, on YouTube, number 23 was posted, which was with Pat Watkins. Mm. And, you know, Pat is the first historian on the ground. And Pat was in with his recon team in Laos. They were watching a trail at night. Actually, it was a road that had tanks, troops, trucks supplies Mm -hmm. heading south for several hours he monitored it wrote it down near the end of this cavalcade of enemy troops moving south one an nva soldier came up to one of his brew a montagnard tribesman on his team and said it's your turn for guard duty and so the brew didn't say anything the nva left he went to Pat and said, the NVA just told me it's my turn for guard duty. <laughs> wow. So they were close to first light. Pat moved the team out. They had contact. They were in contact all day. And at the end, they were in a bomb crater mm-hmm. directing airstrikes. And Captain On came in with a King Bee 
and hovered and settled into the bomb crater so they could jump on the King Bee, and he left. And as he's leaving, the anti-aircraft, the ACAC, he was dodging the ACAC to get the team out. Jeez. But he did. And so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, those the, the stories are absolutely insane. And uh, was Charles Wilkow, was that the guy you talked about earlier, or was that somebody else? Somebody else. Okay. The uh, the Charles Wilkow story, um, escaping captivity being, what was that? What was that story? The only thing I know is what I've read about it. Okay. And um, he had been in captivity, and I thought it was an in-country. He escaped and got out. That's all I know. Yeah. I haven't. I've heard about this recently, because again, our focus has been on the people I know from my time yeah, at yeah. FOB one and CCN, from reading Plaster's books. Mm-hmm. Right and here, yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. John's just done. I call yeah, John. He, John's the godfather of uh, SOG writers because he was the first one. Yeah, I and, took notes. I took. Uh, I have. I have originals uh, inside, but I, I was taking notes on all those. So and, many of your books, right? Oh my gosh! I mean, it's just. And he he sent me this one. So he sent he uh, he signed this for me. So that was pretty cool. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So he he sent me this one the other the other day, which is was really cool, and sent me that too. Oh cool, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, so. yeah. John saw cast number ten. It's up on the YouTube now. And then we also number twenty was Rob Graham. Rob Graham ran a mission on CCS. He went into Cambodia with a bow and arrow. Wow. <laughs> and he used it against the NBA. Really. <laughs> oh wow i got yeah, oh, yeah that's fantastic oh in your spare time yeah yeah that's oh jeez <laughs> see there's all these stories and you're like you know you think you've read up on a lot of this stuff and then you hear something like that you're like what well, that's why i enjoy because i get to hear these stories yeah. that are outside of the ones that i know we try yeah. to get as many as we can and sadly uh three of the people we've interviewed already have passed away so it's a race against time and th- again thanks to jock because he's he's paid for us his staff covers it they Amazing. post them on Spotify, Echo Charles and his people. Yeah. And uh, and it was now up going up on YouTube one at a time. Amazing. Amazing. Speaking of Jocko, I don't think these are the, the uh, Delta 68s, but they're origin genes. So uh, right you here. You got the origin? Yeah, I got the origin genes right here, all made in the USA, you know, uh, Jocko and Pete Roberts. But um, they have the Delta 68s because some guys used to wear seals. I know used to, a couple oh, yeah. guys used to wear the jeans in. Did you have anybody that used to wear the, the jeans? No. We, we you guys are too smart for that. You're like, why would you wear jeans? Like, <laughs> yeah. Some guy's barefoot. They, it like, took him a long time to get dried out. But I got my origin belt. Oh, nice. There you go. Absolutely. Oh, perfect. Never perfect. leave home without it. Love oh, it. Yeah, for sure. Love it. <laughs> yeah, it's John Plaster. So he sent me one, and it didn't make it. And so in this one, he said, uh, Jack, if this one doesn't get to you, I'll hand deliver the next one. <laughs> there he is right there. So oh, yeah. That was uh, that was very cool. Um, but yeah, he's, done, he's done some great sniper books. Yeah, I have those too. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh-huh. Read all those because it was, I mean, really, there was not that much innovation as far as tactics go from, I mean, obviously technology evolved, but um, from the end of Vietnam up to September 11th, uh, the tactics that you guys used in the jungles of Vietnam, that was what we trained. That's what we did. Well, before I got there in the 70s, before I got there in the 80s, and then I get there in the, in sure. the late 90s, but we're doing those same tactics and we're kind of picking them up and dropping them into the desert. We're dropping them into urban environments, mountains. And then we find out when we get to Afghanistan that it's a little bit little bit different. Um, right. Well, again, this is something that, what you just said, I learned thanks to Jocko. Mm. I've heard people, I've, t- I've, in the last year, I've been down to Marsoc 
Air Force. Yeah, I've been seeing that on your Instagram. Oh, yeah. And uh, so down there talking to these guys, each of the ones, particularly the guys with institutional knowledge, like there's a guy named John Daly. He was with the First Force Recon at Camp Pendleton huh. in 99 and 2000. I met him there as a reporter okay. carving Force Recon. And they were doing some outstanding stuff. Then they became debt one, yep. the first Marines to go to Iraq. Yep, I was and with again, them. My, you were there. Yeah, yeah. So they would, they learned how to get the bad guys to fire on the bad guys. Mm. My favorite debt one story. They okay. would go out and get the bad guys killing each other, and they pull back and watch the fireplace. Yeah, oh. but debt one. So John Daly was there, but all of these guys, over time, now these last few years, say, well. Some of your tactics we've used, we've learned about. It. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, you it's guys amazing. learned so many lessons in in blood that uh, that 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 we benefited from over all those years, and then ended up adapting in these different environments. But really, everything was based on Vietnam uh, tactics and reputation. Uh, <laughs> we lived on the reputation of operators in Vietnam, SOG, wow. and the other units that you mentioned in the SEAL teams, and because uh, there were flashpoints, you know, there was. Desert One, there was uh, uh, Grenada, there's sure. Panama, there's Mogadishu. Um, oh, the first 30th Gulf anniversary War, yesterday. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for posting that. Absolutely. I, I post about it every year and just don't want uh, don't want those lessons to be forgotten so that uh, the next generations have to relearn. And, oh. you know, the tactical level, we're, we're pretty good. Amazing. At Mogadishu without a specter. If they'd had one specter. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, and it was daylight, but uh, it was, I mean, they, they were out there for the night, too. Oh, and yeah. what, what did we learn from that? Well, if you think you're going on a daylight op, bring <laughs> your nods. <laughs> yeah, bring your nods. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's, uh, but yeah, I just want to make sure, do what I can anyway, to, uh, to make sure that we can pass those lessons on so we don't have to relearn them. Oh, and, I know. Because uh, that's the heartbreaking part when you have to relearn well, something. And the play. classic example, that too, of the lessons not learned, I mean, in 1970, we have SOG. We had Scarface, mm. the Marine Corps, supporting us, Air Force, Army. Mm. And um, 10 years later, you have the debacle in the desert. Yeah. But the, the Marines couldn't talk to the Air Force. I mean, it's only 10 years. Yeah. And then out of that, I think we, <sighs> they, we got some out of that, though. At least they did take a breath look at what happened to Desert One and made some institutional changes uh, with SOCOM and JSOC and working together before game day. Yeah. Uh, and, but it's a hard lesson to, to learn. There's no doubt. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And now with SOCOM, I mean, how many, I always wonder, I've heard some people complain that now SOCOM's getting so many people to come through from other mm. uh, military units that aren't soft. Oh, is that right? Mm, yeah. So I haven't checked that one out yet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's uh, it was a good it was a good twenty year run for me, but it's nice to be on the outside looking at it uh, at well, it this way. And don't forget what you guys did and the people that followed us. You know, we stood on the shoulders of the SF originals. Yeah. They were the first guys in '52 go to Germany, and Cold War. They did amazing stuff. There's finally some books coming out on that. Yeah. And then. We stood on their shoulders. Today's operators stood on our shoulders yeah. and moved the bar up one more time. It's all about moving that bar and, Absolutely. and, uh, and, uh, and building on a foundation uh, for yeah. which so much 
was sacrificed. And uh, speaking of some of that history, so this book right here, it's one of the the, the coffee table-ish type book there. The photo. By Jason Hardy. Yeah, Jason Hardy. Um, so I have one, and before this podcast airs, I'm going to get all of them before they sell out in case he doesn't do any, any more reprints or something like that. So I want to make sure I have that I'll connect you with Jason. Oh, thank you. Indeed. Thank you. Because um, 512 has got ST Idaho with over 100 pages of ST Idaho history. Nice. And Idaho was one of the first five recon teams in the very beginning. Okay. And so it follows all the way through to the end. And uh, Idaho, uh, Doti Kwong was with Lynn Black on October the 5th, 68. He was one of the uh, five, six Vietnamese on the team for that historic mission 55 years ago. So Kwong was there. Lynn and I kidnapped him from Alabama, put him on Idaho, and then he and Sal were just a dynamic force. Yeah. And Idaho was one of the first recon teams to run a mission all in Dig troops. And Kwong was the team leader. And uh, so they ran missions across the fence, all in ditch. Mm-hmm. Ken Bore was the uh, lieutenant, sec- first lieutenant. He had been on Idaho, and he was advising the team when the team still ran their missions. So they, would, they went across the fence, ran missions, and came back. Yeah. So that's the history of our recon team. Incredible. And yeah, that's I'm gonna get in all volume those. 12 of Volume 12. Yep. I'm going to, yeah, I got that first research <laughs> into my last novel right there. And when you post that picture, the one that probably is, is posted of you the most that uh where is it here does anyone ever tell you that you um yes. that you look like who, who am i gonna say <laughs> uh, uh, he's too old now matt damon damon yeah yeah, yeah. matt it it's remarkable <laughs> it is yeah it looks uh, like him in like the first born movie or something right i don't know if it's kind of like an illegit- illegitimate son or what <laughs> <laughs> well yeah hey <laughs> it's He's possible a good by looking at that. I don't yeah, know. I know. Anyway, the photos you'll see it if you go to your uh, your Instagram and just uh, do a scroll. It'll be it'll be right there. But it's uh, I mean it's a great it's a great it's a great picture. And you do, I mean every time I post that uh, that picture or hold it up or do something like that, people always comment that that uh, you look like Matt. I've Dan. heard it. Yeah. Jock was all me about that. Oh, too. does he really? Yeah. 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 No, it's uh, <laughs> it's remarkable. Uh, and when you think back on your the, all the missions that you were on, or, or the ones you heard about, or the ones you've you've learned about since through the reunions in Vegas or on the on the podcast, um, which ones stand out as those ones that you just cannot believe? Oh. Well, you know, like there's so many. My, I mean, it sounds right. like every mission oh. was like that. But is there is there one or two that stand above the rest as Divine well, intervention, uh, miracle, oh. or I cannot believe that happened. What, what what comes to mind when when you think well, about that? Lynn Black's the story from October fifth. I mean, that's just one of those nine versus ten thousand. Yeah. Okay, so that's right near the top five. But then you have our Medal of Honor recipients. I mean, there's at least two of them that never got out, and one like John Kedenberg was on the LZ, and he gets his team out. He stayed there to cover the team. And he paid the supreme price. And our Medal of Honor stories, I mean, Bob Howard, he's put in for the Medal of Honor three times, received eight Purple Hearts, and the third time he's put in for the medal, he finally got it. Jeez. And he was a sergeant. And then, of course, they promote him to officers. So when he gets After the award, that. oh, I'm, a, I'm an officer. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they you got to watch them. Yeah, they play in those guys. games. Yeah. I'm sorry. But those are... Mission, then the Operation Tailwind. 
That's got to be up there. to be in for, for uh, four days. And they raised the hell there, hit two major caches, and over you know 60% of the team was wounded. Mm. And the medic, Gary Mike Rose, received the Medal of Honor from President Trump on October 23rd, 2017 at the White House. Wow. And it took, it took that long to get the Medal of Honor to him. But he was the one that kept people alive, and he did so with extreme injuries to himself, Jeez. war wounds, but uh, he did it. Wow. He's the man. He's still down in Huntsville, Alabama. No kidding. He is. God bless him. Yes, sir. Man. How about tunnels? What what, uh, what was your experience with tunnels? <laughs> None. Did you meaning you didn't go in any, or that uh, you did? They weren't in the your areas. They of weren't operation. any in the areas of operation. No. The last I was in. Now, Eldon Barnswell, mm-hmm. who was an E, Legend. we were E fours together. Yes, Eldon went on to forty years in, Jeez. retired as a two star general, but on one mission, his recon team, RT uh, Michigan, uh-huh. went into uh, a base camp. They got in, and there was nothing but stay behinds at the base camp. So as he got in there. They got right to the command center, and they began collecting documents. And he wanted a POW. He saw an enemy soldier. Eldon chased this guy. The guy, here's my cave story. The guy went into a cave. Eldon continued to chase him. As the guy ran into a cave, there was a hole in the wall. Mm-hmm. The guy ran, jumped through the hole, and Eldon jumped into the hole, chasing this guy. He really wanted a POW because if we got a POW... We had a five-day R&R hey. anywhere in the world <laughs> and 100 bucks. <laughs> hey, so Eldon wanted that money. So he <laughs> went in, and fortunately, earlier in the day, he saw an NVA vest. He says, I, I want one of these just for a war souvenir. Yeah. So he puts on the NVA vest that has, came over your shoulder, mm. in the back, it had three magazines. He goes in, and when he jumped into that hole, turned around, an NVA opened fire, Shot him in the chest and knocked him right on his ass. Jeez. Eldon was lying there because that night he came back and talked to Lynn Black and I. He's our hoochie. I was lying there. Says some bitch shot me and I said, "Oh my god, I'm dead." Wait, wait, no. If I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Therefore, I'm alive. Jeez. So he got up, jumped out, came back. Uh, the next day, he reported to the commander for I Corps yeah. what they found. Jerry Mad Dog Shriver was at CCN, who's one of our uh, another SOG legend. He was there with his hatchet force. They went back in to that target, and they filled up fifteen helicopters with intelligence briefs, weapons, Jeez. things like that. So that's one of another one of our major missions. But the tunnel story that led to him working with Mad Dog. The next month, Mad Dog went MIA in a target in Cambodia. And uh, Cambodia was April of '69, and wow. uh, he was Jerry Mad Dog Shriver, another one of our SOG legends. Wow, he had been running recon forever. <laughs> Jeez, <sighs> there's a book coming out of him soon. Oh, great! Written by a helicopter pilot. No kidding. Yeah, because he had worked with Mad Dog during one of Mad Dog's tours of duty, and he got to know him on a personal basis. Mm-hmm. So he went back and uh, met Mad Dog's family and took and got their confidence and put together. He's working on a book now wow. that will be coming out soon. 
Incredible. I'll let you know when it comes. Yeah, well, I'll be I'll be right on it. That's Indeed. for sure. I'll be I'll pre-order. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of books, well, thank you for this hardcover expanded edition Indeed. right here across we'll the fence. We'll sign it tonight, and uh, we'll definitely sign it tonight. We're gonna grab some dinner together, and if people have not ordered these, read these across the fence, Sog Chronicles Volume One uh, on the ground, the Secret War in Vietnam. Uh, for sure, order these and then also listen to that Sogcast. Uh, subscribe, check it all out, keep this history alive, and get these for people Christmas in is coming up. Sixth, coming, seventh, coming. eighth grade, high school. I mean, the kids today uh, need heroes, and uh, that's. I know you don't like, you know, no. that term, but that's what you guys are, and uh, kids today need that. So uh, get them for yourself. Get them for anybody you know. I think sixth, seventh, eighth grade is a perfect time, and people need those influences today. So well, I think so too that. what you're doing, like Jocko, and even us all together in our own way. There are people, young people, that have come into the service today as a result of our stuff. Was the podcast? Yeah. I, now I'm meeting people, and uh, uh, three years ago, right after my first Jocko podcast. I got a uh, uh, an email from a lady in um, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. She goes, my nephew is thinking about becoming a Green Beret. Could you help him? Mm. So I sent him a note, said, hey, are you any good? Uh, you got to be in shape. How are you doing on land nav? Well, I gave him a land navigation package no kidding. that a National Guard guy has. And he studied up. He went down when he was getting into, he just finished the prequal. And I was down there for a graduation from a Green Beret class. Yeah. So I met him. We had breakfast. Oh. After he graduated, I was there for his graduation. No way. Really cool, yeah. That is young, Yeah, very young cool. Blake Weaver out of Mississippi. He's with the, he was with the 20th. Wow. And they're going to get attached to third group, I think, now. Jeez. So they're, and that's I all mean, over. I mean, I think there are guys that are joining our SEALs. Yeah. Or Air it's, Force. It's wild. It and, is. Because uh, I don't think that the first book, my first book came out too long ago, 2018. Um, there were two years uh, with COVID that uh, there weren't book tours and it was oh. virtual. And so then the one after COVID that uh, went on, so not this last book tour, but the one before for a book called In the Blood, was the first time really where people stood in line, came up to say hi, and told me that they read the book when they were 16, 17, 18, and now they're in the military, or now they're a police officer, or now they're... Oh, yeah. And and, and I'm shaking their hands and saying hi, and I'm like, I mean, I, I mean, I knew that that was a possibility. Sure. But with everything going on, I hadn't didn't really put too much thought into it until uh, there, there, there I was, and someone's coming uh, through and saying, hey, I've been in the military two years, and it's because I read the terminal list, or I, I started following you on social media, or whatever it is, and... Like, well, you oh, know man, what? I hope I didn't steer you wrong, buddy. Someday, you know where you're going to feel old? When one of these kids comes up to you and says, my I, grandfather yeah. told me. <laughs> oh, uh-huh. I did. Yep, yep. Did no. you know my grandfather? Seriously. Oh, Lord have mercy. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's just how it goes. <laughs> yes, sir. That's just how it goes. Um, <laughs> but interestingly enough, I've talked to uh, David Morrell, who created Rambo oh, in course, 1972 yeah. with First Blood. Uh, and I have become friends over the years. And he's, he's come on the podcast. But um but he it toured Walter Reed and uh, sure. he's done it. But, and he has people that are missing arms and legs or in oh. the burn unit telling him that uh, they join because of Rambo. Yeah. And so he has to figure out a way to, you know, to, to process that. And he's a very kind, sensitive, amazing human being. Um, but, uh, but what's also interesting is that everybody who said that was also like, I'd do it all again. Sure. Like, 
And Morrell did, they did the book on the Navy SEAL who was based off of Curtis Williams, who was with Team One in Vietnam, and Rock Myers, who, when I returned to Vietnam, he had been wounded. Hmm. He was doing temporary duty in S4. And I came back. He said, you're coming back? He says, he gave me a brand new car 15, yeah. still in auto wrapping, took it off. Well, Rock and Curtis, David did a book about searching for gold in the Philippines from the sunken ships. Oh, I'm going to and, have to go and look that up. I'll have oh, to ask yeah. him about that. Absolutely. I'll ask and he him based that. off of Curtis Williams and Rock Myers. Oh, interesting. Curtis was a SEAL from Team One. I'm definitely gonna gonna bring Have, that up and email him tonight. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I'd, I'd be honored to meet him because uh, Curtis talked about it. Of course, I knew Rock. We were good friends. We just lost Rock earlier this year. Sad to say. Man, but David yeah. Morrell, oh, absolutely, sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting thing when someone comes through and tells you that they did something because yeah of you. And it's uh, but a lot of those like like actors even when you talk to somebody who is really uh, yeah. You know, I, I got to talk to Stallone not too long ago, and he wanted to <laughs> he wanted to talk about uh, talk to me about something. So we jumped yeah. on a thing, and I'm growing up, you know, no in the '80s, and I'm you know of course Rocky Rambo. I'm of yeah. that generation, and sure. and uh, so I'm trying to take little photos of our Zoom, you know, to make you know trying to have fun. <laughs> To, uh, to play it cool. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I often wonder if those guys know how much influence that they had on a generation because of the characters that they played and whether that was John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, uh, Charles Norris. Bronson, Chuck Norris, sure. uh, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, like if they know just how how much or if they, you know, if they think about it, I'm sure some of them do and I'm not Oh, absolutely. Not sure. Yeah, but, but it's... It, it, the, Powerful medium, oh, uh, yeah. you know, popular culture, and that's why it's so important. What influences oh, you yeah. have, or today, like who you follow, especially if you're a uh, a, a kid. It's, uh, yeah, it's so particularly powerful. with the forces that are in society today that are doing everything they can to hurt and harm our country. Yeah, yeah, it's another means in which to uh, to manipulate the populace or to influence the populace, and absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's tough. It is tough. But, you know, I do want to read this here, the dedication here and uh, to, to, the, to Across the Fence. And it's right here in the beginning. And let me find it here. I should have, uh, there, boom, boom. Where is it? Where is it? I think it's up here in the beginning. It probably should be very close. Right there, there it is. There, there it is. <laughs> and uh, and there's, that, there's that symbol that <clears throat> we talked about. There it is. For sure. Uh, and you write... This book is dedicated to all SOG reconnaissance team members, both U.S. Special Forces and Indigenous troops, as well as to every man in every air support unit, especially the King B pilots of the 219th South Vietnamese Air Force's Special Operations Squadron, who worked daily with SOG teams on the ground across the fence in America's secret war. This book is also for every man in SOG and their support units who made the ultimate sacrifice. Amen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Powerful stuff. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And it's like um, people, some of our Americans that went to Vietnam never got a chance to understand or look at the Vietnamese perspective, like mm. me and my little people, yeah. how they knew about communism and um, the, uh, the the sheer guts and heroics of the South Vietnamese. Yep, yeah. they're like every unit, there's some that aren't good. But the ones I knew, the ones we came in, I'm alive today thanks to the Vietnamese, both on my team and the King Bee pilots yeah. and, of course, our air support. 
without that, <laughs> you know what it's like. <laughs> oh, yeah. You make that call. If you're there on the ground just fighting for a few hours, you're just really happy when the air support gets there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> that's a feeling you can't really describe no. when that helo flies over, that fast mover oh, flies yeah. over and drops that ordinance. It's, uh, it's hard to describe. Well, it's one that thing feeling. that you go through training. I'll never forget this. You, we, when we did our in-country training, they said, now, when you work with fast movers, the thing is really different. The rounds will arrive before the sound of the jet. Oh, sure, that's cool, I understand. No, no, no. When that really happens, when that guy tells you they're coming in with a fast mover and those bullets start cracking through the jungle before you hear that jet, oh, my God. Sure and, of course, is. Napa, it's crispy critter time. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's oh. indeed. Yeah, the history of napalm also is very interesting. If you have a chance to, to look that up. Oh, is that or, right? Uh, yeah, read uh, the, Bof- the Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell. It goes into the history of, uh, of napalm <laughs> and its connection to... Uh, the Bomber Mafia? Yeah, yeah the Bomber <laughs> Mafia about the... It, it, World War Two, sure. and uh, and then what happened after after that? When you're looking at uh, strategic air command and all the rest of it, uh, no kidding. And, uh, that that group of pilots that uh, uh, it's a fascinating history. But napalm is a is a big part of uh, <laughs> a part of that story. But it's a, it's a fascinating story with universities involved and scientists and some universities that don't really uh, advertise that they had a hand in creating no, napalm. But uh, yeah, definitely worth the worth the read or the listen if uh, if people out there are curious. Uh, the audiobook's amazing as well. But uh, everybody else, pick these up. And man, it is so it's amazing to be able to link up in person. Well, finally and, shake uh, hands. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yes, sir. we got to shake hands and and let's go out and grab a little little bite to eat and talk about all the super super secret stuff that we couldn't talk about. A on little the child that we can have. That's it. That's it. Awesome. Indeed. Well, thank you, sir. And thank you. And thank you for your 20 years. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for building that foundation for all of us. Well, I was only in for three and a half compared to you guys who are in for the 20. Well, you're less smarter than the rest of us, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) No. Anyways, we're we're grateful. And uh, the Spec Ops community, it's amazing to be a part of it, honored to be a part of it to this day. And, uh, you know, of course, on the other hand, when we did the recruiting, and we went through basic and advanced infantry training, and we did the all the training, and then the recruiter comes out and talks to each one of us individually. I was the last one I, he called in. When I came in, he says, Mar, you're lucky. We lowered the standards." <laughs> I said, "That's okay. Am I in or not?" <laughs> yeah. Hey. Sometimes whatever it takes. Indeed. Whatever yes, it for takes. Sure. <laughs> oh, awesome. All right. Thank you so much for everything. My and, pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, we'll uh, keep up we'll, the good work. You too. And we'll do this again soon. And oh, we'll uh, be back. let's go grab a little bite to eat. That's all right. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, this is a book that John Strykermeyer and I talked about on this podcast. It's called Mac V. Sog, Team History of a Clandestine Army. Jason M. Hardy. There are 12 editions of this. I'll be adding all of them to my library. I use this one as research for my last novel, Only the Dead. Be sure and check this out. And we talked about Jocko on this podcast too. Right here, what is this? Jocko pre-workout nitro pop flavored. Sounds dangerous. Look at that right there. Check out what Jocko has going on. You can check out his books, podcast on the social channels. And yeah, I should probably... 
work out after I have that and mix it up in this Nalgene bottle. Go to officialjackcar.com, click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for things like this. And Jocko, one day I'll use that. All right, Sog Chronicles, volume one, On the Ground, The Secret War in Vietnam and Across the Fence, all by John Strykermeyer. Be sure and pick all of these up and listen to his podcast as well. Incredible history captured in these books. We also talked about our Seiko watches on this and uh, DC Vintage Watches, dcvintagewatches.com. They found this Vietnam era watch and compass for me. Absolutely love it. And uh, yeah, very cool history in these in these watches. Uh, Sig P365, this is from True Precision right here true-precision.com. Check out what they have going on. Love that pistol right there. And John gave me this incredible gift after the podcast, and it's a pen, um, but there's some history to it right here that I'll read. And it's Junior's Bullet Pens, pens with purpose. These pens are dedicated to Sergeant Chris Falkel, a member of 3rd Special Forces Group on ODA 316, who was killed in action on 8 August 2005, saving the lives of his team. Chris was awarded the Silver Star for bravery and valor. Chris was called Junior by his teammates. Chris was always making things out of bullets, but never figured out how to make a pen out of a bullet. So these are for you, my son. His dad uh, started this company after Chris's death. Over 30% of the sale of every bullet pen goes to organizations supporting the Special Forces community, such as Task Force Dagger Foundation, the Green Beret Foundation, and the Special Operations Warrior Foundation to take care of Chris's brothers and Special Forces family. Check them out, juniorsbulletpens.com. And uh, you can also hit Jeff up at jeff at juniorsbulletpens.com as well. So check them out, an amazing cause. And yeah, POW, MIA on this one. You're not forgotten. So uh, John Strykermeyer gifted this to me. So John, thank you so much. Be sure and check these out. Incredible story behind that right there. And look at this. So John Plaster, we talked about John Plaster on the podcast as well. I read this one right here, The Secret Wars of America's Commandos in Vietnam, SOG, years and years ago, took notes. And it's an incredible book if you have not read it. And then uh, we got connected recently and John sent me this, SOG, a photo history of the secret wars and signed it for me. So very cool. So John, thank you so much for your service to this nation and for capturing these lessons in all of your books and uh, sincerely appreciate you signing this for me. So cool. And what else do we have here? Well, little pizza oven. So this is the Gosney, G-O-Z-N-E-Y rock box. And it's a Brad Leone edition and you can follow him. He's an amazing guy. He was on the podcast a couple of years back and we were at the SIG Hunter games together. So we had a, we had a blast and this is a restaurant grade portable pizza oven and in Rover Green, this must be for Rafe Hastings. And I'm gonna get this out of the box soon and give this a shot. So uh, Brad, thank you for sending this along. It's, uh, it, it looks fantastic. And to go with it, Tacticalories. I love veteran owned businesses. So check out Tacticalories. I'll have to use some of this on a future pizza. And Mountain Man Toy Shop. So it's just a part of New West Knife Works right here. Oh, look at that. I'm going to go outside right after I finish recording this and give this a toss and uh, see how this does. Or maybe I'm just going to chop up a little pizza with it. We'll see. And Black Raffle Coffee right here since we did a Mac V SOG specific podcast with John Stryker Meyer right there. They did a bag. Uh, and if you know anything about Mac V SOG, 
you'll recognize that. All right. I think that is everything for today. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about John Strykermeyer, be sure and pick up his books, Across the Fence, On the Ground, and SOG Chronicles. And be sure to subscribe to his podcast, SOGcast, Untold Stories of MacV SOG. You can follow him on Instagram at J-S-T-R-Y-K-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R. And be sure and visit his website, SOGChronicles.com. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.